I mean, cool. Uh, for one, of course, this is super useful for so many, uh, you know, uh, companies to have a job fair or have a way to actually re- do recruitment. And and I know so many other like AI Sweden or we have EIT Digital and so many other organizations are trying to help accelerating AI. But one, perhaps, or the biggest need, I think, is recruitment. And, and this thing at NDSML, and what date is it going on? When will the actual job fair happen? Uh, 21st of May. So it's basically you have the summit is on uh, 18, 19th and 20th. And then the 21st is actually the the job fair summit. Mm. Mm. And I guess for H&M, you know, they would, um, they they have high demands on recruitment as well, right? We have uh, enormous demands on recruitment. Just this Mm. year, we want to hire an additional 80 people. Mm. Uh, So, I mean, I think recruitment is the biggest roadblock right now, uh, both locally and then also getting people here uh, from, from the world. Yeah. Um, it's the same for Peltoran as well, of course, and, and the same for uh, Spotify when I worked there as well. I mean, the reason we did a lot of speeches or did a lot of meetups and other things, it's recruitment purposes. I mean, that's the way that you attract people to the company. And, and want I would say partly, yes, okay. uh, it's for recruitment and branding purposes. Mm-hmm. But I also think from personal perspective, I think you need to share the knowledge that you're accumulating as well. Mm-hmm. Of course, not giving away uh, too much of the, the business secret, but I think in order for us to increase the level of talent, uh, mm-hmm. we need to make sure that we, we share the knowledge. If the knowledge only stays in the company and the minds of the people there, we will not be able to build up the talent that wants to join as well. So mm. it goes hand in hand. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think this is why this kind of idea of a job fair, I think it's the first, at least in the Nordics that I've seen, to have a properly scaled up job fair where uh, employees can meet employers, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and I know you're going to be there as well, I guess, in H&M. And of course, H&M is going to be there. Uh, when Goran told me about it, I, we jumped all over it. Mm. Uh, we've been recruiting quite heavily as well, not just continue recruiting, but we recruited over 100 people mm. uh, the last two years. Um, and that's both data scientists and analysts and ML engineers and data, data engineers, data yeah. analysts. I, I, honestly, I think we are over 100 now, 120. Mm. We did a bit of reorganization. So the data engineers moved out of our organization into the data foundation part. Mm. But I think we're up to 120-ish. Mm. Yeah. And how, how, what is that department called? I mean, the whole department, is it? So we, I work in the domain, which is called AI analytics and data, uh, mm. and I'm responsible for the, the product area, which is called AI foundation. Mm. Right. I mean, cool. Uh, I, I really have high hopes for this job fair. And um, that's one of the yeah, more important and problematic and, ch- and the big challenges that so many yeah. companies ha- have when it comes to data and AI to really find talents, right? Yeah, I mean, finding talents, I think, although most companies also are focusing on the wrong talents. Uh, I think one of the good mm-hmm. things around Peltarion, uh, and I'm going to give you a bit of cred here, yeah. is that you enable a lot of users uh, without the, some of the technical knowledges as well. Right. Uh, it's not just about hiring data scientists. You mentioned data analysts as well. I think if we can enable more people through to- tooling, uh, mm-hmm. so it's about your business strategy. How do you go from just focusing on the data scientist, the sexiest right. job of the 20th century, right. into enabling the entire business? Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do we enable more people to work with AI? I think is the general question. And then how do we get the resources and upskill them as well? Yeah. 
Sounds super cool. And Goran, for people that want to know, you know, what are we really speaking about, the job fair, uh, where would they find information about this? They can so, Google um, for what? So or? you go to um, NDSML Summit and mm. then... Um, so Google for NDSML and that stands for yeah, Nordic... So Nordic Data Science Machine Learning Summit. And then on the, the main page, you will be divided between uh, the summit and uh, the job fair. So the summit is actually... The, the sixth annual that we are doing, actually mm. five, fifth annual that we are doing. Was I part of yeah. the first one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no? Of course you are. You're one of the advisory board members. Yeah. Yeah. And I was a... Yes, of course. So basically, uh, yes. And uh, so the summit is actually the, the, the fifth annual that we're organizing for midsize and enterprises uh, across the Nordic is actually the, the annual gathering of the data science and machine learning community in the Nordics mm. to discuss how to maximize the... Um, the usage of these uh, capabilities within the organization. And then uh, the reason why we are creating actually, why we created this uh, job summit, it was because of, so in the recent months, we have gotten a lot of uh, uh, requests by the community actually to help out with either searching for candidates or or, or searching for positions and et cetera. And we are not recruiters. So mm-hmm. the only way how we could help is actually to organize what we know the best and uh, that is like a, an event. Mm. Um, so, so far it's so good. Uh, we have around 500 already participants. Uh, it's expected between 800 and 1000 participants uh, to be there. Uh, and we have fantastic uh, employers as well exhibiting like H&M, uh, Electrolux, uh, Volvo is there, Snowflake mm. is there, many others. So it's going to be fantastic and uh, I'm very excited about it. So uh, go to NDSML Summit slash job uh, fair and mm. you will find out a little bit more. It's free to attend for everybody. And uh, that's it. Great. Cool. So it's basically like a Tinder for data scientists, but actually finding companies, <laughs> not partners. Or Is it a good algorithm behind it? <laughs> we need okay. a recommender okay system for that. Okay. <laughs> cool. Well, um, let's continue now. And I'm very pleased to have you here, Errol Kuhlmeister. Uh, I've known you for quite some time. Yeah. And uh, we met in various situations, um, but it's awesome to have you here speaking and in this podcast. But how would you describe yourself? Who is Errol Kuhlmeister? One of the coolest names I've heard, by the way. Anyway. Thank you so much. Uh, who is Errol Kuhlmeister? Well, I, I would label myself as a, a tech geek, a data geek um, by profession and <laughs> by, by heart as well. Um, I've spent most of my career working with data-driven products. Uh, different industries. I worked in Nordea for, for almost 10 years as an early start to my career. Uh, I worked in Telco, in Vodafone, in, in London as a lead data scientist. I, I work now in H&M. Uh, I worked for a consultancy called Think Big Analytics. I've been Oops. independent. Uh, I'm a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a jack of all trades, uh, but I realized where my heart really lies and it's been my own personal why for a long time. Uh, it's been about making the world more, more data driven. Mm-hmm. Um, I really believe that uh, we can make the world a better place to live in and data and AI is the way to do it. Yeah, you don't have to convince me, but yeah, <laughs> that's a really good story. And and you started in Nordea at what year? What was the year was that? Ooh, when 2006, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. It's starting to become quite a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, started working extra when I was uh, still in school, oh, right. uh, reading uh, finance and business administration and not so hardcore into the math uh, in mm-hmm. the beginning. Uh, but I worked in their fraud department. Uh, the fraud department. Oh, fraud department. So, so one of my first assignments was to, to try to uh, read out all the rules we had for detecting credit card fraud. 
so I got a really good exposure to online uh, screening of transactions. It, it was crazy. Uh, of course, in the beginning, it was batch oriented. So every 15 minutes, all the <laughs> car transactions keep rolling in and we had a massive system uh, running in the back end. And of course, 2006, we didn't have Hadoop. We didn't have MapReduce. We didn't have any of those systems. Uh, we just had big databases. Uh, so I started building uh, models and I started seeing the results by using statistical models. And I started taking down all the kind of uh, all the, the old rules that were in there and started improving them. Um, but I guess at that time it was mainly rule-based or was it data-driven as well? It was time? mainly rule-based. When I came there, it was based on experience. Mm -hmm. So they had a system which you could go in and said, I want this pattern to be detected. Mm -hmm. So it was a very simple, it wasn't even a query language. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I started doing was going under the hood, mm -hmm. going into the database and extracting sampling. So I had some sampling techniques, pulled out the data and did some very distri uh, easy distribution uh, of the data. So I started seeing, okay, where's the cutoff levels? Because we had in the back end, we had investigators looking at the output of the rules. Mm -hmm. So if they looked at too much, they, they had to work all day. And of course they would miss the, the fraud. Uh, and if sometimes it's very important to, to catch it very fast. Yeah. Uh, and if you had too tight rules, then they would get nothing. Uh, so you would miss a lot. So the first thing we did in the rule-based system was where is the optimal balance uh, before even starting to, to go into deep uh, statistics on that. I remember sometimes at Spotify as well that we, people think it's hard to detect uh, fraud if it's botnets or if it's credit card fraud or whatnot. But in reality, if I can say so, it's usually kind of easy. Uh, they yes. have a very distinct behavior uh, yes. compared to normal users normally. And what right. we realized as well is uh, we can do all the rules in the world, but uh, unless we actually have better security. Mm. So I worked in, in Nordea when they introduced 3D Secure, mm, which dropped right. online fraud with like 80%, if I remember correctly. Okay. So that was a much more efficient. It's better to stop it in the beginning. What's 3D Secure? 3D Secure is the one when you go in and they ask you for extra security. Mm -hmm. So you'll get shipped over to Visa or MasterCard or your bank and they'll say, use bank ID in Sweden to authorize this purchase. Right. So it's an extra additional layer. In the past, before that, we only had very simple security measures in banking, like use your CVV value, the one mm -hmm. on the back of your yeah. card. So it's like an early version of a two-factor authentication or something? Or? It, it, it was exactly that, two-factor yeah. authentication. Yeah. Cool. In the beginning, it was just a password, and then we had dynamic. So uh, security has involved as well. Mm. And then you moved into Vodafone, you said. And well, what yes. There? Yeah. So, so I, I was at Nordea for nine and a half years-ish. Mm. Uh, while in school and then full-time. Uh, then when I was working in the new analytics department, mm. uh, a year in, uh, a headhunter called me and said, hey, uh, you have a great background. You worked with data, you worked with banking, yeah. uh, you worked with fraud and security. Uh, I got an open job here at Vodafone Group in London. Mm. Uh, do you want to hear more? Uh, and of course, uh, it, it sounded really good. And you moved to London as well? Or? I did move to London. Oh. I took my, my two small kids, uh, my wife, and uh, moved into the suburbs and uh, worked out of Paddington for, for just a year and a half. What's your thought in general about, general, uh, about London? I, I have my thoughts, but they are rather subjective. Well, I, I love the people, but I think uh, the, the, the city is very dirty. Yes. <laughs> I appreciate Sweden because of the, the clean air, the, the open spaces, and mm. uh, the, the kind of the, the, the time you get with the family as well. And then you were at, you had your own companies, you, you worked at yep. Think uh, Big Analytics, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so and so the reason why I was only one and a half year in, in London, uh, mm. mainly because 
well, it didn't move as fast as I wanted it to move. Uh, mm. I always been a little bit, I want to do more. Mm. Uh, that's why I have a tendency when I expose myself to a lot of complex problems. Uh, is I had a friend that said, um, I've, uh, I have an opportunity to start a company, uh, and get some consultancy agreement going. Mm. Uh, so we did that and I had uh, my own company together with him uh, for a relatively short time uh, because then we decided to part ways. Mm. Uh, and then my friends at Think Big Analytics that mm. was started in, in Silicon Valley, Valley very early on in the AI and data race, nice. uh, gave me a call and said, uh, why don't you come and join us instead? Mm. Uh, and then I said, this is a great opportunity. So I moved over there and became responsible for data science. I was a director of data science for the, the Nordics, Eastern Europe and Russia. And Russia. So and Russia. Interesting. Yes, yeah, yeah. so I've been in right. to Moscow. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, cool. But then you, in some way, got connected to H&M. How did that happen? Well, I've been connected to H&M uh, my entire life, as uh, all Swedes have, mm. uh, I guess. Uh, started early uh, with uh, uh, with my mother worked there. So mm. when they called, I, I, of course, thought this is a Swedish icon. This sounds really interesting. Mm. Um, and I took the first few meetings, uh, with H&M, uh, met some really great people. Um, and I thought that this is a, a terrific transformation that you're want to invest in. Mm -hmm. I asked them so to. So they said that they're going to do some transformation. Well, they, what they said was that we have done uh, a lot of work so far, mm -hmm. uh, for the last two years, approximately. We've had great success. We're already in production. Uh, but we've done so with an external consultancy firm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I said, okay, uh, what do you need from me? Well, we need you to be agile and we need you to help us build this up. Mm. Uh, so basically I joined on the premise that uh, the role wasn't really set, mm. uh, create AI for us. Mm. Um, but I asked them three questions. Do you have data? Mm. Do you have a uh, budget? Uh, and do you have um, senior management uh, backing of actually doing right. this? Sponsorship in the management. Exactly. Team. And they said, yes, we do that. So I decided to join uh, quite rapidly. So I joined uh, off the summer 2018 mm -hmm. uh, and basically started running and I haven't stopped since. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, I think, yeah, it's an interesting company. Of course, every Swede knows about H&M, but still, if you were to, to just give a quick introduction to what H&M is, perhaps in numbers or, you know, what's the size of it? I mean, it's not just a Swedish company anymore, right? It's not just a Swedish company, but it's, uh, it's actually run quite uh, centrally from, from Stockholm still. Mm -hmm. H&M, um, um, this is what I'm always having a hard time. I think it was founded in 47. Um, H&Mers listening in, please don't kill me if it's 46. I, I tend to forget in Investor Uh And they had, a, of course, a business model. Uh, Alan Passion early said that he wanted to democratize fashion. So providing cheap women's clothes uh, to the, the pre post-war uh, Europe or Sweden, of course, in the beginning. Uh, was really successful, started building up more stores first in Sweden, then in the Nordics, uh, then globally. Mm -hmm. Around to year 2000, they had around 1,000 stores. Uh, now we have around 5,000 stores uh, globally. Right. And that's a big number. I don't think people realize, you know, 5,000 stores, and, and each store is rather big as well, right? They, they are extremely big. Um, in, in numbers, I think we are one of the world's largest cotton buyers. Uh, we have around 180,000 employees, give or take. I'm not updated on the, the actual numbers. If you would count the people working in the factories manufacturing the clothes as well, mm -hmm. uh, because we don't own them, we would actually be working together with a million people uh, or more. Really? So there's quite many people having uh, a dependency towards H&M for their livelihood. Yeah. Uh, so we are in uh, most of the, the large cities in the world as well. You are, and uh, 180,000 employees it's it's a big number and few swedish companies can 
match that, yes. I would say. But what are the, the main type of employees you have? Is this mainly store uh, people working with the stores, or oh. is it? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look on the model and why there are so many employees is because a physical retail model, which H&M basically is, mm. uh, it, it consists of a lot of people in the stores mm. because they are big. So each store is, uh, um, is his own company itself. I would say yeah. <laughs> it's being yeah, managed and it's rolled out. So that actually adds on to the number. Yeah. Uh, centrally, there's a, a few thousand people uh, working. Uh, and I want to make a clear distinction as well. We're talking about H&M Group, not H&M Brand, because H&M Group is actually bigger than H&M. We have costs, we have weekday, other stories, right. uh, and uh, it's a park, for instance. So it's a much bigger company than people realize, but it was initially, and perhaps still, I'm not sure, uh, very much focused around the stores, the physical stores, right? Yes, exactly. Um, would you say that's still the case, or are you moving more and more online? Well, we have to go where the customers are, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we still have the stores, and I think still think it's a very, uh, very solid model when there's no pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think if there's something that the pandemic taught us, that the physical retail model is very impacted uh, mm -hmm. when you can't have the stores open. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, if you saw a major drop in sales, which is no secret, uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, we saw a major uplift in online sales as well. Yeah. Uh, so digital is becoming more and more uh, imperative for us. And the question is, if you have 5,000 stores and if you are in almost all the big cities in the world, where do you expand to next? Uh, we haven't opened on Mars yet. <laughs> well, with the help of Elon Musk and others. So that's Hopefully. Happen soon. But I think a lot of people would be interested to hear, you know, how, how has a year with uh, the corona pandemic been for H&M? How, how, what happened in the beginning um, and what's happened in recent times? Well, I remember the, the beginning, and I'm sure all of you do. It's just a year back. Yeah. Uh, I was just coming back from vacation. I, I was in Spain, so I was relatively lucky when the first report started Which coming. Which part in. of Spain, by the way? Uh, Costa del Sol, oh, of course, okay. like every other Swede. <laughs> <laughs> no, I go to Gran Canaria. So it's okay, okay, so. sorry. Yes. I think we were down in uh, Malaga or the outskirts of there. Yeah. Uh, basically, coming back and starting hearing the, the first uh, reports, going into the office. Mm. Uh, I had a, a friend and a colleague um, uh, because I was in the office for a very long time. People started dropping out, but I wanted to show that I was still there. Uh, who actually texted me and said, uh, I just came back from China. Uh, I've seen what this virus can do. Please stay at home. And I realized that this is for real. Yeah. And this is when we started seeing the shutdowns coming in as well. And what month was this approximately? Uh, March, March, somewhere. I'm not sure about the date exactly. Yeah. Uh, so don't hold me accountable if I, I yeah, mix sure. them up. Mm -hmm. The story is better than the actual dates. Uh, but anyway, I, we came in and then we started realizing, okay, the stores are being shut down. How is this going to impact? So physically, us? did shut down the yeah. whole stores at that time. Yeah, well, countries yes. started shutting things down. Sweden yeah. never actually did that, but mm -hmm. I mean, we are almost everywhere in the world. So we're in China, of course. The store, if we have stores in Wuhan, I'm not mm -hmm. sure if we do. Uh, they're going to be shut down if you shut down the entire city. Yeah. So you start seeing that coming in as well, and you're starting having a central crisis coordination, uh, and everybody's a little bit how how will this impact us? Yeah. So we worked day and night and we were in the middle of a transformation as well in the company because we were going to merge AI, IT and business development at the same time. So we were already working uh, through the burning the midnight oil uh, and then the, the pandemic hit. So we were basically not getting much sleep uh, in the beginning and we shut pretty much everything down, which had to do with recruitment. But we also started looking at shifting some of the development to support instead. 
So if we support internal customer support or what? No, no, not in customer support, but supporting some of our use cases. So for instance, uh, if you can give me a forecasting model that could have predicted this mm-hmm. in advance, that would have been very helpful for H&M, yeah. given that our cycles are, what, eight months or, or something that we need to forecast into the future before we actually get the clothes from the manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of the models that we had in uh, demand quantification, they were, of course, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what I think do anyone mean? that claims they, they could yeah. forecast this is, is uh, lying through their teeth. But yeah. Okay, but, yeah. Or, or give me the model. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but basically, so when I say support is when you have warehouses, large warehouses, football mm. fields, warehouse type of setups, yeah. and they're filled with the wrong things, what do you need to do then? Well, you need to balance them. Because if things are open in Spain, but not in the UK, or if things are open somewhere in Africa and closed in Europe, mm. how do you balance demand with that? So we then shift the development into the type of use cases that could actually support us rather than just giving us the wrong predictions. Right. And when you say eight months cycle, I mean, yeah. I guess you mean, you know, you have to do the manufacturing, you have to do the logistics, the warehousing and whatnot. Exactly. And, and when you shut down physical stores like this, how what happens to logistic and, and the whole cycle there? I mean, well, I think you can imagine when borders are being closed, uh, yeah. things won't come in. Uh, I wasn't a part. I just want to say that the logistics. This is my own speculation, yeah. but it's hard to actually get things through customs when customs aren't open. Yeah. Uh, so That's everything right. has to be rethought. Uh, but I mean, there, there are some really good professional people at H&M that worked day and night with this uh, from our office in Hong Kong, from kind of manufacturing, having control over production, etc. Uh, so it, it was really hard. Uh, but I think the entire company uh, and H&M has really good values and actually lived through their core values. Uh, we're able to come together and make sure that we actually turn a profit in the third quarter. Which, of 2020, that's... yeah. Uh, it's amazing. I was like, how did this happen? Uh, but when you meet the people at H&M, mm-hmm. when you realize that there's so many passionate people there, when you actually have built up an AI department, which you can support with numbers and forecasting, mm-hmm. uh, you aren't surprised. Mm-hmm. You're, you're just uh, amazed. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was surprised, but cool. <laughs> uh, that's, that's really cool. And, and what happened then with the, how, how did you actually, you know, turn a profit in, in third quarter? Did you open the stores again? Did you change, you know, to, to online? What did you do to actually make that happen? Well, what we saw was a lot of the, of course, the, the uplift came from the online sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to follow, or we want to follow government re- regulations across the world. So we couldn't really open unless there actually was uh, was allowed to open. Mm. So we had to follow those things. But online was uh, a really uplift. I can't remember the exact numbers. I think we saw an uplift or an increase with like 30%. Mm. Uh, but that's just me taking it out of air from a discussion I probably heard somewhere. Mm. Uh, but I, what I know is that we did a lot uh, of the uplift. Uh, and Goran, if you, you're Googling right now, uh, you can check it because it was in the, the report as well. <laughs> so the fact checking here. Yeah. So no <laughs> fake news here. <laughs> By the way, it was in ni- uh, 1947. Oh, so you were close. <laughs> they were there. Cool. So online was part of the success, but then I guess, how long did you actually have uh, normally the, the stores closed as well? When could you start opening again? Uh, depends on the country. Um, mm. We got reports uh, relatively regularly just uh, controlling the world. You could see that they were shut down. It was red uh, and then it became green or, or yellow if they had uh, partial mm. shutdown, etc. So... 
And I mean, th this is a dashboard of the world where we are things being shut down. Mm -hmm. This is the interesting thing about working for a global company. You actually get input from the entire world when these yeah. type of things happen. You should have an almost bigger overview of the, the corona in the world than most other companies since you have so many yep. data points, right? Most likely, yes, uh, at least on a, some sort of a macro level. Cool. And, and what's the situation today? I mean, if we start to just think a bit, you know, post-corona, and uh, of course it's basically transformed the whole society and I guess yeah. H&M in, in, in such a fast pace that it's really amazing. Do you think we will go back basically to the situation we had before Corona or will it, you know, the balance between online and physical stores, what will happen, you know, after post-Corona? I mean, there is a meme uh, floating around yeah. uh, where there's a questionnaire. Who is driving your digital transformation? Mm. Is it a CIO, CEO or CXO? Or then somebody has uh, scribbled in uh, the, the coronavirus. <laughs> and, and I love that one because... Yeah. I've been waiting for a very long time that we could kind of accelerate these type of activities that's now happening. Mm. It took us like six months, not just H&M, but many companies to start seeing that if we don't invest properly into digital transformation, mm. become data driven, we're out of business. Yeah. The digital natives, uh, the, the tech companies, of course, some of them were uh, very hit, but they have a technical business model. Mm. They have a data driven, so they understand these type of patterns. Um, and we need to as well. So I'm hoping that we don't go back uh, to the way it was before. I'm hoping we will fly less. I'm hoping there will be possibility to work more from home. Uh, I'm hoping that the services connected with these type of things on on-demand deliveries, uh, faster deliveries, uh, personalization recommendations, all of these things will be accelerated uh, times 10, if not times 100. Mm. Sounds great. And... I guess we, if we speak about like data and AI, move a bit more into you know how that can impact H and M and uh, what the transformation process that you uh, were basically assigned to to help out with when you started there. What would you say, you know, if you think back when you started and and to what you do today, what are the the biggest you know impact or parts of the company that uh, can benefit the most from this type of transformation? Well, I think. These type of transformations, they go through different cycles. I think most companies went through the first cycle uh, already in the beginning. Uh, the first cycle is the, the proof of concept, proof of value, which mm. is the PowerPoint cycle, which I refer to <laughs> it as. H&M uh, has passed that. Uh, for, mm. it, it was a long time ago. The second part is, of course, when you start taking those PowerPoints and making production systems. Mm. And you start realizing that uh, what the consultants did in that nice PowerPoint uh, doesn't match reality because reality is much messier. Uh, reality is much more engineering work that you would ever expect. Uh, but if you actually reach production, the, the first stage uh, or the, the finish line for the first stage, you start seeing the value. Mm. And when you start seeing the value, your CIO or your stakeholders or CEO uh, is going to come out and say, okay, how do we scale this thing? Mm. Which is the third cycle. And what was the two first cycle? The two first, <laughs> the two first one. The one is the PowerPoint POC, cycle. Yes. The, mm -hmm. the POC. I, I like the PowerPoint cycle because everybody, everybody <laughs> okay, can relate to that. Yes. <laughs> Have you seen that PowerPoint? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the second part is the, the, the early fumbling productionization uh, steps. Mm -hmm. uh, you're starting getting something, a, a PowerPoint to act on, uh, a forecasting to take decisions from a recommendation engine that's producing something to your customers. It doesn't need to be super. 
So it's semi-productionized version, like a pilot or something? That yeah, pilot-ish yeah. uh, type of things. Uh, and of course, it, this is relatively liquid because different companies do it differently. Mm. Uh, but what I start seeing as, as pattern when I talk to people is that, yeah, we're doing things. Mm. Is, is there what you can, we have it in production. Mm. Um, and I think this is so interesting because I call these vertical capabilities because mm. you're building use case by use case. Right. Um, in some companies, you start seeing that they only focus on on some specific ones because somebody likes that one. Somebody knows there's a lot of money here. Mm-hmm. No real roadmap. But if mm-hmm. you are a better company, you're probably done a roadmap as well, which is I want to do these things, which is usually going from high value feasibility mm-hmm. type of access. Right. Um, when you come into the third one, you start talking about scaling. And this is when it starts becoming much more hard, especially if you're a big company like H&M. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we, in the initial beginning here, talked about recruitment. Yes. Scaling requires a lot of investment. Scaling requires not only T-shaped individuals, but also specialized individuals as well. T-shaped individuals? T-shaped individuals. You know a little bit about everything. That's the (laughs) the head Uh, of the T. And then you're a specialist in something. All right. Hmm. So that's a T-shaped individual. I haven't heard about that before. I, I love that impression. Yeah. Everybody talks about, at least in HR, we need T-shaped individuals. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we always do. We need them for certain occasions as well. Mm. Uh, th- of course, we want people that know a lot of things. Yeah. But when you start scaling and you start building these teams, you're going to start realizing that, okay, we're doing multiple use cases now. Mm. Uh, but we're starting seeing some commonalities between these use cases. Why do we have one team working on this demand forecasting use case and another team over here working on another demand forecasting, trying to forecast pretty much the same thing? Mm. Um, and then you start thinking about, okay, so how many people do I need to hire? Well, it depends on how fast I want to go. Mm. But your CEO says, I see the value because mm. you're selling my production here. I'm starting seeing money back. Can't we just hire more people? And this is where the, the resources bottleneck. Mm. I say these days, work smarter, not harder. Uh, mm. Especially at H&M, we have started to look on horizontal capabilities instead. Right. Now, we, what do you mean with that? So, I mean, you mentioned verticals, and I yes. guess what you mean with that, it can be you know, a specific type of demand forecasting or something like that. Exactly. Um, where we see each use case as its own capability. Mm. What I talk about on horizontal is that we see the forecasting itself as a capability. We see the technology as a capability. So we talk about develop it once, use it many, rather than develop it for each individual use case. So reusing the capabilities throughout different use cases. And I know for those that have been around in IT for a very long time, these are the same principles as uh, SOA, for instance, Mm -hmm. where we talk about the Lego bricks. I Mm -hmm. think the logic is still sound, but we need to work smarter around this problem, not harder. Mm -hmm. I think it goes back to, I've been obsessed with software development best practices for (laughs) for a relatively long time. Mm -hmm. Started out as a data geek and then uh, became too much into (laughs) engineering. Mm -hmm. But engineering has been around for a longer period of time, which has made it possible for them to establish more best practices. Yes. Um, and what we start seeing is let's start reusing the components you are making uh, rather than reinventing them over and over again. If your demand forecast can enable five use cases, you're going to cut development time down significantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, music to my ears. You know, we, we have a, a conference coming up soon called uh, one of the biggest engineering conferences called uh, International Conference of uh, Software Engineering, ICSA. And they're going to have a new workshop called AI Engineering which I, you should actually be a, a speaker in, I think. I'm actually, yeah, I'm doing the second keynote. 
Oh, you do? I am. <laughs> I should know that, unfortunately. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but this is, I think, such an interesting topic. And just to give my, my view a bit about it, it's, it's trying to marry, in some way, software engineering with AI development or AI engineering. And um, as you say, you know, we, we have had software engineering for a long time, and yeah. we have rather well, or at least rather well established best practices and tooling for doing so, but not so much in AI engineering. And I guess some people call it like a DevOps versus MLOps or things like that. How would you phrase it? Or do you think that will happen, uh, that we will start to have a marriage between the two like uh, different branches that we have today of uh, AI development and software development? I, I think that AI development is a, a sub-branch of software development. Mm. Uh, I posted once what's the difference between software engineering and machine learning engineering. Uh, and of course, there are some differences, but, but then I got a few comments around, uh, well, it is software engineering. Software engineering is a relatively big field. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's just, we don't need to differentiate the best practices should still be there. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you start implementing AI, there are some specific requirements around what you do. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a more fluid life cycle into that and it's uh, driven around data, but uh, the best practices still hold. Mm -hmm. You still need to do unit testing. You, you still need to, to do integration testing. <laughs> you still need uh, to make sure you write good code and comment and all of those things is still mm -hmm. valid. Mm -hmm. Uh, what I started looking at is what I criticized early on was that we talked about data scientists as the jack of all trades. Mm. Uh, and that's good in the early phases. But when you are maturing, you can't be the jack of all trades because you can't develop the system according to the guidelines just by be, we, being one person. That's not a scalable business model. Mm. So you need to have the best practices for software engineering. You need to make sure that your data scientists actually get to work on your data science problems, not your engineering problems. Uh, and you need to make sure there's a clear handover of these type of responsibilities. Yeah. So I believe more in creating capabilities or toolings to support the model development mm. to make sure that these uh, two, two worlds work together as well. And... Mm. Um. Okay, so if you were to try to describe to people, what are the big differences between AI engineering and traditional software engineering? How would you describe the differences? There are probably a few people are going to disagree a little bit with me or <laughs> even that I'm taking a stab at it. But I think one of the big differences is that the quality of what you're doing, of course, depends on code in both cases. Uh, but from a software engineering, it comes from the requirements. Mm. I think that the best practices or the quality of your AI engineering project comes from the results you can get out of it in a stable environment. So what you're optimizing for. Uh, I think that's a, a big difference. Uh, and I know that wasn't crystal clear. Uh, so what you can get out of it. So, so in terms of some business value or what? Yes, the, the business value and the throughput. Mm -hmm. That could also be true for some software engineering products. But I think specifically in the sub-branch of ML or AI engineering, it's about measuring the, the accuracy, for instance. Mm -hmm. And here comes the interesting part, because when you start looking on software engineering, you usually pick one stack. Uh, I'm going to write this in Java, mm -hmm. or I'm going to do this type of technology in C because I want to optimize for. Mm -hmm. But when you start looking at machine learning, imagine H&M, and imagine if a data scientist comes and says, I've been able to do a 0 0.1 uplift mm -hmm. in the total sales of H&M globally, yeah. but I'm using R. Okay. <laughs> and we're a Python company. Yeah. That 0.1% is a lot of money. Yeah. Of Are we then going to say, no, sorry, you're not following our best practices on our software stack, so we're not going to use that? Yeah. Or are we going to find the way around it? Yeah. 
Mm. Or if they say I've done a chain model using R, then I'm using Python, then I'm using some obscure Scala language that nobody heard about, and I'm getting an uplift of 0.2%. Mm. And this is, this is the interesting topic because do we want to leave money on the table just because we don't allow for those best practices or, or how should we go about it? Mm. And to be honest, for me, the way of solving that is containerization, making sure you look on the parts of the system and you isolate it and you have loosely coupled uh, relationships between the different parts. You can actually interchange uh, as you progress as well. That's uh, yeah, one of my favorite topics as well. But containerization, let's, let's uh, park that for a second yes. and, and talk more about that soon. Um, just going back a bit to the differences between AI engineering and uh, traditional software engineering, and, and you mentioned a number of things. One can be that data scientists are a bit um, um, schizophrenic. You know, I'm a data scientist myself, so that's why <laughs> I think I can say that. But we have different um, tool sets, I guess, um, that than perhaps traditional software engineering has, both in terms of languages you use or what type of testing you do and what type of hardware you use and yeah. things like that, right? So it's a lot of different things, and um, that's that's one part of it, and I certainly agree with that. But some other people say that you know one big difference, and I'd like to hear if you agree with this. But one big difference can be that traditional software engineering is very based on the code. It's very based on you know how do you handle dependencies in the code, how do you handle version control in that, and how do you build you know quality assurance for for making sure the co- the code really works and scales properly. But when it comes to AI, it's so much more dependent on the data. You still have the code, as you say, but how do you do you know, testing on, on the data you have? How, how do you scale up doing the data processing in, in a good way? How can you, you know, what kind of tooling do you have to actually do analyze the data compared to analyzing the code, for example, and, and improving and maximizing the quality of the code, which we have a lot of tooling to do, yeah. but perhaps not so much for the data. Would you agree with that, that that's a big difference as well? I would agree that uh, data is one of the key dependencies when it comes to AI engineering in, in general. Mm. Of course, it's the, the fuel that you put through the machine. Yeah. Um, I think many of the traditional might not be as dependent on data, but I think we're seeing a change as well. Mm. I think most of the systems that are being built today have realized that they need to be fueled by data as well. Mm. They can't just be fueled by some user input or, or those type of things. So most of the systems that are being built today are being more and more fueled by data. Mm. So I think it's rather than a specific AI engineering problem that they are have a dependency towards data, I'm, I'm starting to see that most products are being fueled by data. Mm. So I would say it's a general shift in software engineering on the more dependency yeah, side of that, things. That's a good point, actually. Um, and uh, even traditional software development then is yeah. becoming increasingly dependent uh, on data in that way. But I guess you know machine learning, you know, since per definition it's extremely dependent. So yeah, I think so. I mean, machine learning as well. We talked about data dependency, and I mean, machine learning will be integrated in any system in the future. Yeah. I mean, I read the other day about uh, Tiny ML uh, being able to deploy machine learning on uh, Arduino sticks as well it will be everywhere. And the system's not being fueled by some sort of algorithm. Uh, they are probably not going to be the successful systems in the future. Mm. Uh, so any software engineering project at some point will have an integration with AI, mm. either as an API from a service or, or something else. 
just uh, repeat, we have a question. So software engineering value can be measured in dollars, but AI is tough to measure. Is that correct? I think it was other way around, right? So software engineering value can be measured in dollars, but AI is tough to measure. Is that correct? I think it's the opposite. Yeah, I think yeah, it's it the opposite, opposite as right? well. <clears throat> it depends on the project. I think AI is usually closely related to some sort of ROI type of calculation, uh, which is of course good. You're working with data, but not all of them are. Uh, and I think that's the, the big differentiation. Um, many of these things like just customer interactions over customer service, it's not always easy to measure in, in money. Uh, branding through AI or voice recognition is very hard to measure ROI as well. So, and in some point, some software engineering um, projects can be measured in money as well. So I would say yes and no in that case. It's a hard question. What do you say, Anders? I'm thinking business value. Of course, we want business value from AI products. That's no question. But don't you do that as well for software engineering? I mean, that's really the end goal as well. Or, I mean, I would perhaps phrase it as user experience, which is yeah. the end goal, but then you want business value as well. But is it really, a, don't you want that from both? Yeah, I think you, you want you want that investment back, unless it's just for fun type of projects. Yes, that's AI. That's, that's AI. for fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think end of the day, if you're a business, you're going to do a business case on most of these things. Sometimes the, the value is hard to measure, yeah. uh, but in decision science, you should take all your decision parameters, transfer them into a common denominator, which is usually money. Mm. Uh, and that's for software engineering and AI engineering. Yeah. That makes it easy to compare yeah, and see what's right. Okay, so if, yeah, um, then uh, if we take another question and just to uh, try to demystify AI, which is the core theme of this podcast, and we have terms like uh, DevOps and MLOps that we mentioned a bit here. And I think we mentioned some of the tooling that DevOps can be about. And um, in some ways, you, you can say it's DevOps is both, you know, what are the best practices for developing things and also deploying software uh, in some yeah. way. H how would you describe MLOps? And I know H&M is one of the few companies that actually do have a lot of systems in production. And I know you specifically is very much keen on making sure that we can have good best practices for putting ML system in production. But how would you describe them MLOps and so, contrast it to perhaps DevOps? Yeah, of course, I'll try to. I mean, DevOps in general is, I would say, the, the, the overarching uh, genre. MLOps mm. is a part of it. Mm. It's not independent. I just want to make that clear. Yeah. So the best practices goes into DevOps, uh, the release uh, frequent type of setup and the uh, way of actually developing software is integrated and infused in MLOps. I just want to make that clear as a mm. first statement. Why I like MLOps so far, and I, I think I spoke about it really early. Uh, when we started talking about it, we called it analytics ops mm -hmm. before MLOps was actually established okay. as a term. Yeah. I think I spoke about it at uh, one of the data innovation summits. Really? Uh, was it like 2017 or 2018 or something? Uh, analytics ops, the path to production was what I talked about then. Mm -hmm. And why I like MLOps is because I'm obsessed with processes. Um, processes. Yeah, I think it was NDSML. No, no, it was, it was data. data. Yeah, data innovation something. Yeah. Too many conferences. Uh, too, <laughs> many, <laughs> too many. Too many. <laughs> it was in hyperide production. Yes. Um, but basically, I love processes, yeah. uh, and not because processes in themselves are fun. Because if you have a process and you have a repeatable pattern, you can automate it. Mm. 
Yeah. And that's exactly what MLOps is all and about. And reuse it, I guess. And reuse it. Yes. And that's actually how you make efficient development. What I started doing uh, early on when I worked with Analytics Ops was how does the development process looks like for a data scientist? So what do you do first? Mm. Yeah, well, you start looking at the data. Then what do you do second? Well, you probably do a few models. Uh, you tune your hyperparameters. Uh, you do testing. And then you probably want to do some version control type of thing. And who are involved in this process? Who are your stakeholders? How do you automate their interaction? And then how do you deploy it? And when you're deploying it, what are you doing then? Well, you're getting data, you are doing ETL of that as well. And then you're using your model and then you're getting some results. Mm. A repeatable process. This is MLOps, a repeatable process of the machine learning cycle. And why is this important? Because what I realized in MLOps is that there are usually two uh, different processes, developing and deploying. And why this is important? Because when you're looking on costs, and, and I'm also, I, I had a finance degree, so <laughs> I started looking at the cost, is that most of these costs goes into development. Because training a neural network, training a large model on massive amounts of data requires a lot of computing power. Mm. Computing power is expensive. Data storage is, is usually quite cheap. Yeah. Deploying a model, so when you're doing inference, is a lightweight process because it's just a statistical representation that you did in your training process. So if you can separate these two, uh, training and deployment, mm-hmm. then you can actually save a lot of money. And if you design your backend and infrastructure in the best way, you can save 70 or 80%. What I realized in the large companies I worked for is that many of them had stale clusters standing around, right. uh, costing a lot of money because nobody was using them. Mm-hmm. So if you can then have smarter infrastructure, and MLOps is not just about the process itself, it's about optimizing the process as well. Right. So the, some of the first thing we did with uh, introducing MLOps into H&M was looking at the stale clusters, taking them down, moving over to um, auto-scaling. Mm-hmm. So we went hot pooling instead. So we could just say, now we're going to train the model, start the cluster, scale mm-hmm. it up automatically, mm-hmm. then you're down, scale it down. Mm-hmm. And we saved a lot of money and time in doing so. Yeah, the, the whole move into cloud computing in a good way and having flexible, you know, uh, resources in terms yeah. of machines in this case. But I reacted a bit to what you said, and, and just like to double check there. And, and you said, you know, training versus inference in some yes. way um, require different processes, at least I guess, and tooling and potentially hardware as well. Yep. But you said potentially training is is more computational. I mean. If you think, you know, big companies like Spotify or H&M and you actually put the system in production, isn't in the inference part much more resource demanding than the training part? It, no, in, generally speaking, I would say training is usually the thing that's most resource intense when you're doing it. It, of mm-hmm. course, depends on how you're using it. If it's an online system that has million and million of hits, mm. then you can probably add up the computational power to being more expensive. Yeah. But as a bulk training in one instance, usually that's the case. Uh, if you do spaghetti coding, as, as many data scientists, no, just like horrible engineers, horrible kind of engineers has yes. done, uh, you do everything in one go. Yeah. And then you have to retrain, you don't have a process for that. But if you separate, mm. you can train computationally once, separate the model because you do like a PML abstraction or another type of extraction Mm. language. uh, And then you can use that into inference. Mm. So you don't need to retrain until you start seeing some model uh, deterioration. Mm. So you have good results. Of course, over time, that will be more computational expensive if you add it on together. 
but then you shouldn't retrain it until you actually start seeing deterioration of the model performance. Yeah. So I guess that's a part of the MLOps as well, to try yes. to monitor that potential skew between the training and serving, right? And right. this is what I love because it's it's so complex and there's so many moving parts and there's so much new technology coming. Mm -hmm. So I've spoken to so many great companies that are trying to solve this. I haven't yet been presented a one solution to cover the entire value chain of uh, MLOps in mm -hmm. a good way. Mm -hmm. Everything has their own speciality here. Everybody has their own speciality here. Uh, and I still think that the judges are, are out for how this is going to look in the next few years. So speaking once again, you know, we spoke before about the marriage between uh, software engineering and AI, AI engineering. Do you think that will be in marriage? Or, I mean, you, I think you basically said that MLOps is a part of DevOps. So yes. is that the way you see the future that like you know, MLOps will be a natural part of any kind of DevOps that we have? Or what do you think? Definitely. I see MLOps being a part of it. I see DataOps being a part of it as well. Mm. What we are doing now is that we are maturing. And when we start maturing, we start seeing these sub-genres or sub-domains of the larger topics breaking out into smaller domains to kind of support the, the, uh, the network as well. Mm. I think that DevOps, DevOps is more of a bigger picture type of setup in my point of view. It doesn't need to be technical. Uh, the entire company can do DevOps without everybody having to be engineers. Mm. It's a way of thinking. When you go down to MLOps, it's taking that thinking or data ops for that matter and seeing how can we automate, how can we be better? So I think it's almost, uh, well, it's almost like uh, something Zen futuristic. How do I optimize? <laughs> Zen, I love philosophy. <laughs> we, should we, we have another question uh, yeah. while we are at, uh, on MLOps. Um, so uh, what is your take on AutoML? <laughs> I think there was a very good presentation on AutoML uh, on uh, Nordic Data Science and Machine Learning Summit uh, the last time, where they actually did an overview over all the open source frameworks as well. Um, I think AutoML is relatively good, but I just want to separate that AutoML can be used. So it always goes back to why do you want to use AutoML? AutoML can be very good of very rapidly creating a baseline. And I think that's what should be used for today because I haven't seen all the best practices around them out there actually outperforming the really good data scientist. So it should be used as a baseline. The second part is long tail use cases. When you don't have data science resources to build specific models, but you still think there's value there, AutoML can be used for some type of recipes for creating a very easy model that's better than random that you can deploy if the tools, of course, allow it or the, the software or whatever it's infused in, because then you can reach that value without having to wait for the data scientists to have time in their backlog to do it. Mm. So I think it's a good idea. And there's been a lot of papers out there also discussing when will machine learning or data scientists be obsolete. Mm. And I think that those people that ask those questions haven't really figured out what data scientists do mm. because data scientists are problem solvers they're not just about the math. They're about solving the problems and problems we will always have a lot of. It's like asking, I think, you know, when will uh, physicists be out of work? I mean, will we ever have a full understanding of works? I mean, of course not. So it's kind of, we move on and find more interesting and uh, high level questions, I think, to yeah. answer. But uh, yeah. Do you agree with AutoML type of part? I see two parts. 
Yeah, but I think AutoML is also kind of an ambiguous yeah. term, and people use it in different ways. One people, what some people think AutoML is simply hyperparameter tuning, which mm-hmm. is one part, or you can think about you know trying to find the best model in terms of like using H two O or data robots, robots or something, and and just trying out you know these type of model what really works in this data case uh, in the, for this data set, and and that of course is one in, interesting part. Something we actually do spend a lot of time with in Peltorian is uh, more into the neural architectural search part, which is different, I would say. So the difference then is really, you know, we, we simply don't try out from a grid or random search point of view what works in this case. We actually develop a new thing, a new architecture mm. that is specifically built for this data set. And that, has, uh, I think, has big promise because it <laughs> removes or relieves a bit of the need for an AI expert in terms of, you know, what layer should it be? How big should it be? What type should it be? And you can simply use data to learn not only the weights or the parameters of the model, but also learn the architecture. So you basically automate the process of building the AI systems more by using that. And if that's the type of AutoML we're speaking about, that I, I do believe is the the future in some way. That's at least. And this is what I usually have the hardest time when it comes to neural networks, Mm. architecture. (laughs) If I can get a tool (laughs) to support me in that and I make more decisions around, okay, how am I going to apply it? Is this good or bad? That would be super. It's such a trial and error and and no one really knows what to do today. And that type of manual aspect and manual designing of the architecture is something we need to get away from a bit, I think, to make it truly scalable in terms of. Are there any good papers you know about that? some someone, not me, of course, mm. should read if they want to understand more. One of the the biggest one is called darts. Yeah, darts like dart uh, competitions. Um, but basically, what they can do, you know, traditional neural architectural search was really really expensive from a computational point of view. Right. So you had to try out so many different architectures, and for every architecture, you had to retrain on some model, and, and that didn't scale. But with darts and these type of models, you can basically train the architecture and the parameters at the same time. So during the same session, training session, you both train the parameters and the architectures, and basically making it you know, almost the same speed as normal training. That is like a revolution, I would say. So it's really cool stuff. Cool. Um, yeah. And, but AutoML, yeah, but it's 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 so much left there to do before we, you know, I, you know, when I worked at Spotify, we had a vision saying, you know, I want to hear music X, and I just don't want to search for it, I don't want to browse for it, I just want to play the play button or press the play button. That's really, and I guess in H and M case, you know, they want to simply <laughs> press the buy button, or you know, <laughs> I want to have these kind of trousers, or I want to have this type of style for my new, I don't know. I'm not a fashion guy, but uh, some kind of shirt that you want. And and the AI should basically, or the system should figure out, you know, what really I want to have. Yes. So the, the more quickly you move to understanding the people and the fashion, I think that's that's really what we want to move towards. So, mm. And this is such a hard, understanding people, w- mm. will we ever be? This is a very, philo- now we're getting back to philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> philosophy. Uh, but what I think is what we talk about in H&M is amplified intelligence. Yeah. Uh, we truly believe that humans will always be needed. Uh, yeah. Machines will never be as good as us at certain things, and we will never be as good as machines on certain things. Yeah. So let's, how can we amplify the, the work that we're doing today. So for instance, when it comes to fashion forecasting, mm. how can we make sure that our brilliant designers uh, actually have a, a good trend sensing? Everybody can have a bad day, right? Mm. But imagine if I'm a, a, 
a designer. I'm not, disclaimer. Mm. Uh, and, and I think uh, zebras is going to be very hot. Zebra pattern leggings. They're not going to be, so don't go out and buy them. Uh, I hate that. But, <laughs> but, that's <not> my... <laughs> but imagine, you probably want to check that as well. Yeah. And how do you check that? Well, we develop fashion forecasting, um, which is basically a tool where you can go in uh, and add uh, to a search bar zebra patterns. And you can start seeing, okay, so how has zebra interest uh, evolved over time? How is, how is our prediction that it's going to evolve into the future? Mm. So what we want to do and make sure is the decision power is with the humans, mm. but everything else is kind of fact-checking, controlling, verifying, giving suggestions goes to the AI part of things. I, mean, I think this is such a big topic, you know, the amplified intelligence. And I, I haven't really heard anyone else besides you and H&M to speak about that. But I think we, we need to unpack that a bit more. Yep. And I very much agree, of course, that human in a loop is really the, the best way to get started with AI and not completely automate things, but actually have like a semi-automated way where human is in control in some way. But, but you said something uh, in the beginning that I think is interesting, and, and that is, you know, AI is good at some things and humans are good at uh, some things as well, and yes. they are different. Yes. Can you try to, what, how would you describe you know, what AI is good at today and, and what humans potentially is good at today? Well, what we talk about primarily today in AI is narrow AI. Mm. So I would say everything that can be uh, proven with data, mm. um, you need to, of course, have data to, to do AI and have a very clearly precise question being asked at it. Mm. Uh, like, what color should I have? Um is the stock market going up and down? Oh, that's a bad example because nobody can predict that well enough. Uh, but questions that are very narrow in, in its art, mm. AI is very good at it. Yeah. Humans have a potential in their brains, which is so huge. Uh, we can look at the painting and draw conclusions. Uh, we can connect the dots between the answers we get from AI in a much better way. Mm. So we are seeing the holistic approach. We're connecting all the small things together. Uh, but AI supports us in the things which goes beyond our understanding, the long tail. Imagine if you are a, a buyer at H&M and we have, I don't know, a product line, 6,000 products or how many different combinations. Should we do everything manually? Mm -hmm. No, of course not. Should we do some things for humans, which might be something that we want to say this is more forward-leaning type of mm -hmm. things? Of course. Mm -hmm. I think this is the big distinction. AI is very good at long tail problems, mm. in my opinion. Yeah, I, mean, I like that. Uh, the way that I sometimes phrase it, and it would be fun to hear if you agree uh, or not, but, but AI today is narrow, as we say, and very far from being as engineering as humans are. But what AI is re really good at is also to go through a huge amount of data. Yes. So if you have, you know, uh, the history of, you know, if you take fa fashion forecasting, you know, going through a huge amount of data to try to understand what the trends and patterns are, is something that AI can do very well, but in a narrow sense. Mm. Then human, of course, is, is much better. They have the general type of background knowledge and reasoning that AI is very, very far from, from having. So if you can combine the two, you would have amplified intelligence, right? Exactly. And that's so spot on. Yeah. I think that's a very good conclusion on amplified intelligence. I, I love that topic. And I mm. think people shouldn't be afraid. And I mean, there's ethical discussions. Is AI taking our jobs? Mm. No, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> We're not there yet. I would say that it's like um, AI is taking away the boring part of the our, our exactly. jobs. Exactly. And then we can focus on the fun part yes, as humans. I would add... Um, AI is uh, is improving yourself at work. Right, right. Yeah. Enabling people that may not be an expert in some field to actually do very yeah. complicated tasks. Yes. Yeah.
process more data. I mean, everybody talk about the, the noise, mm. uh, information overload, and AI can help us na- nav- navigate through that. Yeah. Then some, some word on cautions as well. Uh, AI is relatively dumb as well. It will create more it filter bubbles as well. If you only click on the things you like, you only got to get presented with the things you like. Mm. Unless there actually was a talented uh, AI architect that understands that you need to uh, introduce some some samples as well to increase that. If you have the wrong metric you're trying to optimize for AI, AI will not care about you know why you did it. It simply will do it. Right? Exactly. But the human will potentially <laughs> yeah. uh, consider that. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. Cool. Uh, I'd like to move to to a topic that you brought up, which is containerization, Ooh. and um, it's also. Uh, I know it's one of your favorite topics and, and actually one of mine as well. But if we uh, try to j- just speak about, you know, what does that really mean? And, and thinking like um, yeah, cloud computing in general or trying to find, you know, the abstraction going from you having the hardware and manage everything and yeah. going to some operating system that you need to manage and update all the time to the application and so forth. How would you describe what the added value and, or elevated pitch for containerization really is? So containerization, I think we need to start a little bit earlier. Uh, I was actually looking through a few old notes from a course I took like 10 years back uh, on IT development. Abstraction layers is the key here. And I think you pointed that out a little bit. Uh, Imagine if you were presented with uh, a bunch of hardware in your hand, a lot of gadgets and everything everywhere. You don't when you buy a piece of hardware today. You have an abstraction layer. So your remote, for instance, that is an abstraction layer of the underlying technology because you wouldn't understand that. We are using abstraction layer to make it easier uh, for us to use things. Uh, The same things goes for our development. Mm. When we are developing technology, we need to think uh, abstraction layer above what we're doing. Containerizations, for me, is an isolation of a specific task. So for instance, if I want to deploy an AI model, if I containerize it, I can pretty much have it run on my laptop because the underlying protocols and abstractions is being uh, comprehended by the containerization. I can then take that containerization, move that protocol exactly over to the cloud for production deployment. It makes it easier for us to just entangle. And the problem when a software developer says, well, it works on my computer is all gone mm. because your computer is replicated everywhere with the same prerequisites. Yeah, I think it's a really nice description of it. And um, this goes back a bit, I think, to what you said before about having repeatable processes in some way that um, otherwise, you know, you have to have the exact type of operating system, you have to have the exact type of dependencies in place, you have to have the exact version of whatever kind of you know libraries you have. Yeah. But now if you can actually have that defined process, as you said, you know, but now we're speaking about defining, I guess, um, abstraction layer where the application runs in, in some way. So it's not a process of humans, it's a process of the software. It's a process of the software. It's not the process of the human. For humans developing, the first few times we use containers, it's actually going to be more tedious. I don't know how many times I've sat uh, and I'm uh, defining the requirements. Uh, which uh, which image should I use? Is it mm. Ubuntu? Is it Python Slim? Mm. And then I can't download it because the proxy is that, or there's the wrong connection, mm. or I don't know too much. It, it creates a little bit of fuss in the beginning. Mm. But what that type of fuss actually, when you're through with it, is that you're able to run it everywhere. Yeah. And that's what you want to be able to do. 
think that's as a having repeatable and reusable processes. I think it's like a core theme, you know, both in terms of you know human processes, but also in t- terms of machine and software processes, right? Definitely, yeah. uh, and it creates more stable uh, stable systems as well. I mean, Facebook started with move fast and break things. Mm. Uh, now they changed it to move fast uh, with stable infra. That's actually what it's all about. Because if you move fast and break things, mm. you're going to create, you're going to probably have, if you're moving really fast, you're probably going to, I'm going to skip that testing. Mm. Oh, I'm going to skip that thing. Oh, creating a containerization is going to add on two days to development time. Mm. And then all of a sudden you're sitting in production and your system is going mayhem. <laughs> uh, and what do you do then? Uh, well, either you go back. 10 years in development and introduced the, the, the IT frameworks. Oh, we're going to have six months releases. We're going to have dependency mappings. We're going to have testing with people. Or you start moving to more modern uh, development uh, processes like mm-hmm. DevOps, containerization, because you want to create stable infra, but you still want to be able to move fast. Mm-hmm. You spend a little bit more time in the beginning so that when you take off, you get the hockey stick effect. That's- you don't need any deployments before the system is actually working in that way. Mm. And then you get as many as you want and the, you were able to roll back. Mm. So it adds some complexity in the beginning, I guess, when you yes. start developing things, but you have the hockey stick effect, you know, when you actually start using it, I guess. I love the hockey stick effect. <laughs> <laughs> and then for people that don't, you know, if we move into, you know, with Kubernetes, et cetera, you know, okay. if you have containerization in place and you want to scale it up and have this kind of auto-scaling, et cetera, how far would you say H&M has come in that process? Would you say it, it works rather well today to have a containerized and auto-scaling kind of infrastructure in that terms? Um, yes and no. Uh, Kubernetes is, of course, preferred from, from my perspective. We're not mm. there with all the cases, yeah. uh, but we are with some and those that are, are actually moving relatively rapidly in all the development uh, cycles. Uh, the first few ones that we looked at developing, the, the AI use cases using a more modern architecture took 12 months. Now we're down to six months because mm. we're using repeatable patterns in everything that we do. And we're going to take it down even to just a few months in right. the future. To do what more specifically? To develop an AI use case end-to-end. And remember, we developed so, entire infrastructure from Kubernetes, from containerization, uh, from development, training, etc. Mm. Uh, all of that is based but on... But it could be that. like a specific like demand forecasting use case or something like that. Exactly. So, so we can reuse all the components, the pipelines, uh, pretty much anything. And when mm. it comes to these things, you have to... Acknowledge when you use Kubernetes, when you don't use U- Kubernetes, etc. Mainly we use that for deployment. Yeah. Uh, we use other types of scaling up and down for training the model because we don't containerize in the beginning on training. We need a good environment for that. So, mm-hmm. so we use Databricks today. Yeah. Uh, because they're really good on giving a notebook experience. Then we take that code and we in some way just give that over uh, for development create the containers, uh, create the clusters in the back end, and then deploy it on, on Kubernetes as well. So I think that could potentially be an interesting topic to move into a bit. And, and that is basically more, what is the tech stack of H&M? And now you started speaking about uh, Databricks a bit. Yes. And uh, if we take a, let's take a concrete example. We've spoken a lot about demand forecasting. Perhaps we should just continue with that and, and say sure. someone... Um, me or someone says, I have an awesome idea. I want to try out, you know, if we can forecast better um, the corona effect of uh, how people is going yeah. to buy um, trousers. I don't know. And and now you, you have to collect some data and you start to try to build some kind of prototype. I'm not sure if you even go that route or you go directly to pilot or how you're thinking. But can you just go a bit more into depth? What is the preferred? I mean, I, I guess, you know, 
not everyone is the same, but how would you say the preferred tech stack would look like and process would look like if you were to build a new use case? So what we did to speed things out, <clears throat> because we realized this process is usually, in my head, the process is standardized, but mm. not in everybody else's head, and everybody has their own idea how to do development. Yeah. I, we started and data see- scientists are schizophrenic, but- They yeah. are, but they are so good. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, uh, I started seeing that, okay, you want to use a Jupyter Notebook. Okay, you want to use RStudio. Okay, you want to use that. Okay, we need to narrow the type of technologies that we are allowing, but still provide a maximum amount of freedom. Yeah. Uh, and we need a standardized process on how to actually um, uh, what was the word, how we actually go from use case to production. So we started a team called AI Exploration, uh, which is basically today our main entry point for new use cases. Uh, Remember in the beginning, well, you don't remember because I haven't told you, but we had seven or eight large scale use cases. Now we want to start hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. So we need to start quite many all the time. The idea of AI Exploration is having people that are relatively T-shaped, the the early stage type of evaluators, have them access our tech stack and our best practices and our already developed components that are experts in that so they can quickly start new use cases. Today, when you start a new use case or a new exploration, uh, you basically have infrastructure as a code or we're working on improving that like Terraform or or something similar. Mm. So you set up the entire infrastructure in one go. So we have have those components clearly defined so you can then log in. We will also then have some example notebooks on how to access the data. That's actually a training course that we're working on. But so you know, okay, these are the data sets that we have. And through then the Databricks installation, uh, you can access a few of them. And for people that's not familiar with Databricks, can you just explain very briefly what that's about? Yes, and sorry, I have a tendency of just jumping into the names. But Databricks is uh, created by the original founders of Apache Spark. And Apache Spark is de facto the standard for distributed computing. So if you have a large scale data set, then you're using Apache Spark of actually writing the AI code. Uh, and that's uh, the founders of that thought that, well, how can we monetize or productionize that? Uh, so they created a company called Databricks, mm. uh, which is, of course, today uh, the CEO is Ali Gudzi, mm. uh, who used to study at, uh, he was a professor at KTH, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah. And he, he's super smart. And he's yeah. one of those hidden Swedish talents that we don't hear, hear too much yeah. about. Yeah, sure. And there's the other founder as well in Databricks. It's, yeah, I've yeah. met it a number of times. And he's, yeah, they're really good people. They're, they're super smart yeah. people. Uh, I have a tendency of hyping them to some, but it's just because I've been attending the Spark Summit since I think 2016 or yeah. 2015. Can't remember which year, but. <laughs> So they have, um, for one, a notebook, uh, notebook environment that is built on a, like a distributed uh, backend underneath, yes. right? That's, so um, notebook environment. When I joined H&M, everybody was doing Jupyter notebooks, but I was a little bit horrified because everybody was using the same logging credentials and everything was kind of uh, open. So I like open source, but there's no clear process and governance and the things you need to have in a large company to have control over the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, I just rapidly moved everybody over to, to Databricks when those features were there, or I told that this is the way I think we should go. Mm. Uh, and luckily, some, some smart people listened to me as well. Mm. So we use Databricks now as kind of the main entry points for, for accessing data and working with distributed So technology. that's mainly for the exploration phase, or is it also for... Ah, coming to that. Ah, okay. uh, so mainly for the exploration phase, yes. Uh, then the question, of course, is when you do your models, you do forecasting, hyperparameter tuning. We track uh, all of the model experiments in MLflow, for instance, mm. which is an open source product that Databricks also released. Um, and integrated. And integrated, uh, of course. Um, 
Uh, we make sure that all of the results from the experiments are tracked so we can follow them as well. Mm. Then when we have a model, of course, in the proof of concept, we hand that over to the stakeholders and say, this is what we did. So remember the PowerPoint phase, that, mm. that's pretty much the end of it. Mm. Uh, if they have the capacity to take it over, we move into productionization phase. Uh, and productionization phase is how do we go to production with this? And is that a truly a movement between people as well? Or is the same people that actually built the prototype or the pro uh, PowerPoint? Ongoing discussion. <laughs> it's never a clear cut, I would say, yeah. uh, because not so many people are, are satisfied with just taking over somebody else's work. Mm. Uh, but also we have to build up a team capacity that makes sure that they actually have knowledge about these things. Mm. So we try to have more T-shaped individuals there and more specialists potentially working on that specific business mm. problem. But we haven't really figured it out yet. Mm. Uh, so far, we haven't handed over too many of the new use cases still being operated by, by the, that really good team. I think this is an interesting topic we should speak a bit more about sh shortly as well. And that's more you know, into how do you organize data scientists or um, people that have innovative ideas and, and make that happen throughout the organization. And bottom up versus top down. But before we, we move into that, let's try to, to just speak a bit more about the tech stack. So for the exploration phase, you are trying to basically standardize a bit, you know, the, yes. the tech stack for that. And you have Databricks and you can access most of the data that you have in different ways. Yes, of course. Today, yeah, you can access most of the data. Well, it, it's role dependent. So mm -hmm. the people in that team, they can access the data that's relevant for the thing that we're doing. You shouldn't be able to access things you don't have any business of actually accessing. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a matter of, uh, of course, we have some personal data, a lot of sales data. Uh, we just want to make sure that uh, you have access to what you need to have access to. Of mm -hmm. course, working with data, you usually have access to relatively sensitive things. Yeah, yeah. Eager to go into that <laughs> rabbit hole, but that's not. Um, so, okay, let's say let's say that you do some interesting um, exploration phase. You, you build a PowerPoint or a prototype, yeah. and now the next steps comes, and, and you want to productionize it somehow. How, what is your preferred process for, for making that happen? The preferred process is that when you have built a model, um, uh, you create, of course, a, a standardized process of retraining it again. Mm -hmm. uh, then you should take that kind of modeling development and output. Of course, it depends on what type of model it is and how you can abstract it. Mm -hmm. But you should move it more towards containerization. Mm -hmm. So the serving part should be picking up that abstraction. Uh, you can't. You can do that today in ML. Uh, ML flow, I think I'm th trying to remember if they released that latest, but you should be able to move into project, containerize it, and then pick it up by the serving system. And the serving system should be on top of Kubernetes. Mm. Uh, of course, it depends. Uh, if it's batch, then probably you're just going to run some type of batch job mm. for that. But if it's an online serving Kubernetes to be able to provide a microservice API type of approach to, to serving. Mm. And um, as you said, that it's still a, a work in progress if that should be the same people or not. Uh, but in, in some way, if you make that happen, that means that you can take the, the PowerPoint, the prototype and put it in production. And hopefully by having a repeatable process in, yes. in making that happen, it can be scalable and maintainable and exactly. sustainable in some way. And I mean, what we haven't talked about yet is this is the first phase. Mm -hmm. Then when you have it into production or serving, right. how do you do the follow-up? And this is what usually the most MLOps companies uh, go, go wrong mm -hmm. because they don't do that. Mm -hmm. What's most important for me is not to create the best model from day one. Because honestly, you don't know if your model is good or bad until it's actually in production. Right. You know theoretically if it's good or bad, but you don't know actually. Mm. 
Uh, and you should be able to track that because uh, patterns change. That's the only thing that we know. Nothing is consistent. And, and perhaps a big uh, or little shout out to Christian Gutmann as well. You know, he, pr- he talks about uh, proof of value instead of proof of concept in sometimes. I love uh, that. That's very good. <laughs> and if I'm, uh, yeah, paraphrasing a bit, but, but uh, you know, you don't really, s- proof of concept can be a bit abused sometimes. And it's not really until you have a proof of value, which is uh, either by business value or user value in some way. That exactly. Really no, it, I think that's a very good definition. Yeah. Uh, so, so credit to Christian. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, so you can, if I understand you correctly, you can think of at least three steps here. One is the more exploration phase, building a PowerPoint prototype thing. You try to productionize it. You have some containerized uh, serving potentially based on Kubernetes. That's correct. And then you move into more also maintaining and continuous improvement yeah. stage. Yes. Uh, and what we haven't covered in that continuous ongoing is that in order for productionization, you need to have integrated A-B testing type of setup as well. It shouldn't just be one model. It should be multiple <laughs> models that you have into production. You should have some sort of reinforcement learning loop as well uh, and to actually collect new data about these processes. Uh, so the framework becomes quite complex relatively fast. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what I like. We're, we're never going to be done with this process. It's always yeah. going to evolve. Biting a t- my tongue a bit <laughs> about your reinforcement learning comment, but that's not good. Um, cool. And uh, that's a bit about the tech stack. I think that was really well described, I think, you know, and, uh, yeah. and of course we understand, you know, everything is a work in progress and is evolving and uh, improving. And as the tooling, you know, is improving as well uh, throughout the world. And of course, what we want to help with in Peltorian as well to make yeah. the tooling even better and easier to, to make this process so much faster. And I mean, Anders, you, you've been in this game for a while as well. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine the technology advancement the last five, 10 years? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember a dialogue you and I had when we talked about we used to sit and tune, uh, have control of a yarn in Hadoop <laughs> clusters <Yes. laughs> to make sure nobody was using all the resources. Yeah. Everybody was just submitting their Spark jobs once upon a time. But. I, I killed uh, more than half of whole of Spot, uh, Spotify's uh, cluster, Hadoop cluster, by, by taking an abusive uh, Spark uh, cluster once. They were not happy with me, I can tell you. But <laughs> it was not a clear process on how to do it, so yeah. I abused it. <laughs> it was fun times. Yeah. Cool. Um, I... Uh, we spoke a bit about, you know, another topic, which was more uh, about the organization. And, and it's more about, you know, bottom up versus top down. And it's also about, you know, should the same people that do the innovation in some part also be responsible for delivering it in some way? And, and another way, okay, let me phrase it like this. I'm trying to find a good way to, to phrase a question here. You can think about uh, at least two different ways to organize companies. One can be that you have a centralized data science team and, and, and they can do some innovation and do a lot of PowerPoints, as you call it, or prototypes. And you can also have another type of organization where the data scientists are more integrated into the product teams. And you have a large number of teams develop different products and they basically innovate themselves. And, and I, if I just give my quick view on that, there are pros and cons with both. If you have a single data scientist or analyst working in a product team, they basically become very isolated and it's hard for them to have the critical mass necessary to really evolve. And it's hard to fight against the product owner sometimes that uh, you know, want to deliver something for the next sprint and, and they have a different cycle of development that is not really working that well. On the other hand, if you have a only centralized one that's completely disconnected from the product development, then you know they will work with things that may not be as useful as if you have something that's embedded in 
are it seems. If we start with that, uh, do you have a preferred way to organize data scientists? Yes, I, I do. And I'm so glad you brought this up because I, I love this topic. I think that the only thing we know is we're going to go to different evolutional stages. I think H&M has, has done it quite well because they started with the first stage. Don't have, they didn't have any people internally, so they used external consultants to start proving the value. So it was central with external resources. Right. Second step, when you started wanting to take that own, uh, over and started seeing uh, the value of it, starting to build up the internal central capabilities so with internal people, mm. still central and still taking over the use cases. Uh, we needed them to work together, so we got a team, and then we moved that over and took over the use cases. Mm. Now that we moved into our new organization, we became an enabling domain, and we wanted to do more use cases. So we needed to create a hybrid model as well. Right. And hybrid model then forced us to create another strategic approach, because what's the matter of having a central part if you have people outside in the domains as well working in the product teams. And back oh. to your point, how are one data scientist going to fight against a product owner? Yeah. We need to create this hybrid model to be able to create a sense of belonging for all of our data scientists. And we also needed a central capability building team. So back to the central team now doesn't just focus on the use cases, they focus on the capability building. And capabilities that we build are MLOps components, for instance, so the model development, central deployment platform teams. We do AI explorations to support the, the organization with starting up new use cases, because if you never started an AI use case, I can guarantee you're going to do it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to, I would second that. Yeah, to, to support people with actually starting things up. And then having an AI best practice team as well. What are the best practices? How do we document? How do we agree on approaches? Uh, how do we create AI literacy upskilling programs, data upskilling programs, mm. etc.? And slowly handing over our large-scale use cases to the other domains and building up the capability. So we can focus on expertise in the central part and then having more T-shaped individuals out, but still having the support of a very strong AI team as well. So we both enable the teams to run faster with capabilities rather being isolated islands out there. Mm. Yeah, well phrased, I think. And the hybrid approach, uh, certainly if you're at the scale that uh, H&M is and, and are big companies, then I think for sure that sounds like the best approach to go for. And then, but you use the term expertise and, and expertise can be mean, mean very many things. It can be AI expertise, but it can also be domain <laughs> expertise yes. in some way. And what you basically, I guess, want to do is making sure that we get the best value for, from any kind of expertise that you have. So if I let me see if I understand or understood you correctly when, when you said it. So, so we need some central teams to build, it, build up at least a set of repeatable processes or best practices yep. in how you go about building a demand, demand forecasting or whatever it is, or recommender system or, or something like that. And um, then we need to have other people, perhaps T-shaped people in the product teams that can reuse, so to speak, the processes that they have defined and hopefully in that way scale faster. Is that correct? Or? Well, to, to a certain extent. So what we talk about now is um, the capability building. So we talk about demand forecasting. So take, for instance, in-season demand forecasting. Mm. Uh, that was one capability we developed in one specific use case. But what we realized in that demand forecasting, we could reuse that into 
potentially three other use cases as well. Mm. So what you then as a data scientist become when you're in a product team is more of an integrator. You're a part of developing the, the central a little bit as well, but also then talking about that product team on how can we use that? How can we drive that faster? Mm. So you become the link between the central capability building team and that use case as well. That's the, that's the main rule at least. And then we're going to have a lot of exceptions because we're not going to be building shared capability for everything. So at some stage, you will be a data scientist, a little bit isolated, <laughs> doing it from scratch, but hopefully with a lot of support from the central teams as well. Mm-hmm. So you have a sense of belonging at the central team, but you also have a sense of belonging in your product team as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, so the vision of Peltorne in many cases is to basically say that we want to make AI available for non-AI experts, meaning domain experts, or saying someone that perhaps has... Uh, I don't know, manage uh, warehouse logistics for, for some H&M store. And um, they have, you know, a lot of domain expertise for what they think works and does not work. And um, if we can have repeatable processes, um, as you say, or best practices of how you can start exploring things and in all the stages you spoke of, like the yeah. exploration step, and if you want to put it in production and start to do A-B testing on it and see what really works or not, then if you, then potentially you can get best of both worlds, right? I hope so. I mean, what we know is that there isn't enough people for us to hire almost. Uh, well, not available people on the market. Um, we are searching everywhere to, to get more senior people in mm-hmm. uh, because that's what we're missing in the market right now. Uh, we would love to take more junior people in, but we need senior people yeah. to coach them. Yeah. Uh, if we can have toolings, no code, low code type of tools that just requires your your domain knowledge mm. to be enabled by AI, that, that would be super. So thinking five years ahead now, and still the organizational topic, you know, of um, how to best accelerate, accelerate AI and data in, in different teams. Do you think it will come a point where like you can think uh, tra- normal, traditional software engineers that may not be super experts in AI, or you can think product owners, or you can think... Uh, some domain expert that is specialized in, in specialized in uh, how I'm sorry for my fashion skills is horrible, but <laughs> what the fashion will be for trousers in coming two years or something. Yeah. And they probably have so much knowledge about that, that, that if you can put that into practice and use data and AI to, to amplify it, mm. that would be the best use case. Do, do you think that in five years, basically these people will use AI without having to involve like centralized AI experts in H&M? Yes, I think that will come even faster. Right. Uh, five years, then, then we'll have better tools, of course, but I think that's just around the corner. Uh, they just need to be enabled. There are a lot of tools on the market to, to enable that processes. Will it be the best deployment uh, mm-hmm. in a year? No, uh, mm-hmm. but it will be an an ROI uh, type of deployment, mm-hmm. uh, or well, a positive ROI at least. But I want to pick up something which I think might be a side step to that because for me, it's not just about the tooling. Mm -hmm. For me, I think the tooling is what we discuss a lot because that's what's tangible. But what I see is missing is a lot of the underpart. We have already touched about like resources, people. But what I see is that we'll start maturing like a framework for these things as well. Mm 
which is basically going everything from, from people, what type of people, the team compositions, uh, into the strategy, what do we want to accomplish with AI? I think that's the, the most underrated question. People don't actually ask that advanced. They just talk about AI, but mm. strategy is so important to operating model. And I think you touched upon that as well, uh, into mastery and how do you become best in class around these things? I think all of this will be start breaking down to different parts as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and technology and data, of course, will be a main part of it. But if you just get the data and technology right, that doesn't matter. You need to get all the things right. If you just get the strategy but the technology wrong, that doesn't matter either because then you st- uh, struggle mm-hmm. with extracting value. But this is a part of the, the maturity journey that we're currently going through. And I think more and more people are starting to realize that this is a bigger undertaking and it will lead to the transformation of companies is my strong opinion. Well, it would be a beautiful future if AI becomes a commodity in some sense and yeah. something available for everyone, for sure. So uh, perhaps moving into a slightly different topic and, and uh, also a favorite topic of mine, which is more about long-term innovation and research in companies. And I've been fighting for that for a long time personally and believe that's a rather important topic and something that a lot of uh, yeah, companies at least don't put enough emphasis with. And what I mean with that is also that companies may be driven a lot with uh, with a strong like a product owner, for example, that may focus a lot and have clear demands on in the next quarter, we have to deliver on these kind of things. And, and that, of course, is really good and should be done. But then we need someone that also thinks about the more like not one quarter, but, you know, one year or five years ahead. Uh, for one, do you think that's missing today in, in perhaps H&M or other companies? Uh, or h- how how can we make sure that we have the long-term innovation and research focus as well combined with the more short-term ones? It's a super hard question. And I first of all, I agree with you. I mm-hmm. think we should have it. Um, somebody told me, um, I think it was Danica, um, who is in our board, uh, talked about that the, the electric engine wasn't <laughs> invented uh, with just uh, product deliveries. You need to have research to actually reach this type of, right. of incremental uh, improvements. Uh, well, long-term improvements. It's not yes. an incremental, it's a long-term exactly. improvement. Yes. Uh, and, and I agreed. So, I mean, what we started at H&M was a research team. Mm. What I'm struggling with, though, is defining how you actually justify that investment. I know we need it, mm. uh, I am just struggling around how do we organize it in the best way. I think Spotify has an interesting model about this research scientist working 50% in a product team, 50% on research. I think that that might work, but how do you make sure that they don't become an isolated island either? How do you make sure that they stay relevant in the things that they're looking at? I think our team is shaping up really nicely right now. We have started publishing our, our first position paper, for instance, oh, uh, at the AI engineering workshop. We, we sent it in and got it approved. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> exactly. I have to uh, review it soon, then, I think. Yes. Uh, it's just a position paper, yeah. but it's the first stumbling step. Uh, we start in sponsoring PhDs uh, to make sure they actually focus their PhDs on, on H&M relevant topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some really good funding that we can go in and, and work with together. You think you would have your own industrial PhD soon in H&M? Yes, uh, we, we are working together now with Örebro University mm-hmm. on two PhD uh, positions. Yeah. Hopefully we can also sponsor our own uh, fully uh, PhD. Yeah. 
Uh, it's also a matter of having good candidates. We have some really good internal candidates, but they have to have an interest and we have to have a process. It's a long-term commitment. Yeah, it is. Uh, so we just have to make sure that people are ready for it and we have relevant topics for them to work on. Mm. Uh, we're working a lot with master students. Uh, some of the master students we're bringing are really advanced and bringing new perspectives as well. Of course, it might not be uh, PhD research, but it's, it's actually proving to be very valuable yeah. for us and a, yes. a good way of hiring very talented people. Um, but what we're now doing is consolidating what are the business needs? Where do we want to move? Mm -hmm. uh, we need to have good questions to be to answer, to be answered by research. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the hardest thing. It's not, we can set up a team, hire a bunch of PhDs, but if we don't have the right process, if we don't give them the right metrics to optimize for, exactly. we will not get the results. And it will probably be something we shut down in a few years because we don't see the value. Mm -hmm. We have to, of course, have a few years perspective, but when do we see an outcome? If you're just hiding, well, it will be an additional five years. It will be an additional five years all the time. Mm. Someone at some point is going to start asking questions, but what are you doing there? Mm. Uh, what is costing so much money? Mm. So this is the difference between being in academia and being in the business and trying to merge these two is not always the easiest. Mm. I'm not saying I have a recipe for success. I'm saying I have more questions than answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, um, it's certainly a hard topic. But if we take the the big tech giants that we do have in the world yeah. and the Google and the Amazons and the Apples and Amazon, yeah, Amazon, if nothing else, they do spend a huge amount of money on long-term research as well. And, and I, in my view, at least, you know, most of the research is not really, you know, is, is failing and failing, but failing can be good. I mean, I think it's okay to fail. And, and for me, at least, the idea, if you're not allowing people to fail with their projects, you would have a lot of problems finding the innovative solutions. Do you see what I mean? Or I see exactly what you mean. Mm. I think it's a, it's a matter of risk appetite as well. Mm. I think most of the traditional companies are not worth, they're not used to working in an agile world in that sense. Mm. Uh, because it, it is a relatively agile approach as well. Yes. Uh, fail fast, well, fail and not fast in research, but at least uh, you're, you're allowed but to fail. Speaking about research, I mean, I think, you know, if you frame the, the research questions properly, um, then it is always about, you know, finding the value in the end. And the danger and that I see so many companies do is that they phrase the research question for a specific technology and then just keep pushing in that direction, even though it, it, it is a wrong direction. So that's, I would argue, is, is a wrongly phrased research question rather than, um, the problem of research. Uh, I would say th this question is like a, a lot of other questions as well is, it's about having the right person in the right place. Yeah. A, a lot of people say and claim that they, they are researchers and do research, but there are very few that actually meet up to the criteria and the standards that, that's needed to do these things. Mm. Uh, I think it's it comes back to attitude and, and will as well and your skill to do these type of things. I think Google, mm. Amazon has been really good at doing it. I think mm. we are getting there we've hired some really good people but i'm not the right person to say how we should do it <laughs> mm. but I, I need the people around me to to actually help us get to that point mm. uh, i mean Anders, you, you have a different profile <laughs> in yes. some cases so maybe you can give us all uh, some of the answers <laughs> as well uh, i cannot but uh, i think uh, it, it is a big problem at least if we sp we speak a lot about the so-called ai divide in this yeah. podcast and we can see a clear difference between what the big tech companies are doing and um, to what traditional companies are doing and we of course love H&M and love these kind of you know strong companies that we have in Sweden but it is a bit dangerous when you see the big tech giants and the extreme long-term interest that they have 
Um, I hope, and uh, I think we, we are working in different areas with like WASP, uh, the research arenas and things like this that, that we're trying to do to, to bridge a bit the gap that we are seeing today between academia and industry. Mm-hmm. And I wish we can see more industrial PhD students that actually do focus on things that the company find interesting. So we start you know, minimizing this gap that uh, unfortunately we are seeing a bit today. Um, but I think, you know, there is a strong possibility and need to do so. And if we just phrase the problem properly, I think so many, many more companies would benefit from having more long-term innovation and research as well. I, I think uh, we're, we're, we're coming there slowly. Mm-hmm. We're, we're lagging behind uh, the tech giants as well. They have, they have figured out a way of doing things differently. Mm-hmm. I think partly part of my success has been trying to be a little bit more orthodox. Mm-hmm. Companies are, even though they don't, don't only seem that way, are very traditional. Mm-hmm. And the traditional way of doing business is built on the standard process, right? For H&M, that was, we do physical retail stores. Mm-hmm. Really good at that. IKEA had the same, same one. And you can see business model, the repeatable pattern. Yeah. But when things starting to change, and this is where the tech gi- giants came in, they were agile to change. Mm. Their business model were adopted and built to, to be changed and try new things. Yeah. The, the traditional companies were not. So I'm being considered a bit or, unorthodox when I say, let's just try it. Let's just do it. Because that's not how you traditionally do in large corporate or enterprises. You have five-year plan, you have roadmaps, you get budget allocation because you know how you're going to develop the current business. Mm. But when the current business isn't where the, the market is going, it's very hard for these companies to steer because they've been taught, they've gone to that school and that's how you do business. Mm. So when you start to change things up, people become nervous. Yeah. I mean, being able to adapt to the big transformation about data and AI that we're seeing, I think is key to any success. And, and, and just to, to end off this topic, one way to describe this, it's um, there is this, He's actually a professor in economics. He called himself, I think, a professor in AI these days, but in reality he's uh, in economics, which is your background as well. But uh, this is uh, Aya Agreval, and he wrote a book called Prediction Machines. And he, he spoke about there is a point, a threshold, a flipping point or an inflection point where the predictions that you can make with data and AI become so useful that you can change the whole business model. So he actually used shopping as an or online shopping as an example, and Amazon has gone that route a bit. And and that would be that normally today you have a behavior which is a two-step process of first you do the shopping and then the shipping of the product. So you go and you shop around and find I want to buy this, and then you ship it at least if it's online. Yeah. And he says, you know, if we can build a system in this case that can predict what the user wants to shop sufficiently accurate, there will be a point where it's more you know, economical to simply ship first. So ship products before you even have shopped for it. So you ship products before you buy it, and then you send back what you don't want. And, and this is actually something you know, which uh, Amazon has a patent about. I think it's called um, anticipatory shopping or something like that, mm. predictive shopping in short. And, and they basically can, they, they argue at least that there are these kind of flipping moments. And then the same, we can take the same for Spotify, for example. It's, um, 
there is a point where, you know, traditionally you build playlists and you manually define these are the songs I want to listen to. But then there comes a point when the recommender system becomes efficiently good, so you stop building playlists and instead simply uh, having the recommender system doing the playlisting for you and you spend more time listening than building playlists. So it's a shipping or a flipping of how you work or the behavior of the user. Yes. It's going from playlisting and then listening to just listening and, and then potentially recommending things. And uh, I th- yeah, there, there are many examples like this. And this kind of flipping behavior, and, and I guess the question then would be Amazon. Yeah, I see Goran is putting up some. Yeah, anticipatory shipping. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what's your thinking about th- this type of flipping? And, and if we take Amazon's, for example, for example, this kind of anticipatory shipping uh, part, what's your thinking about that? I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for for any given investment in this type of area, it, it the question becomes just as uh, economics uh, professors <laughs> probably stated out is that when is it cost neutral? Yeah, uh, And I think that's the, the flipping point that we start to see in any business case that we do. When is it worth more of just pushing things out rather than, than waiting for that actual, when do we look more for signals mm. rather than when we're looking more for actions? And if you can do that in a good way, I think that's a, a very good way of being relevant. Uh, when I lived in the UK, uh, I really liked the Amazon uh, Prime, or you could get anything. I, I remember uh, my wife's sister was visiting, and we needed another seat for for a child. Mm. Uh, we ordered it, and the next day on Saturday morning, I think we had it delivered already. Yeah. And I mean, those type of things. Of course, we were taking an action, but they probably had those things in the close proximity warehouse as well. Mm. So you probably have a back uh, warehouse, and you send it in the front to be able to ship those things out with Amazon Prime. Mm. Uh, and I think the more we start looking on these solutions, the better for the customer. As well, so so I really like those concepts. Mm. What that entails for H and M, I have no idea yet. But <laughs> do mm. we need to look into? Of course. Mm. But look at it. this. Is actually a very simplistic approach. We as human, we are a, a creature of habit, right? Especially, for example, like uh, it's a very funny uh, what is called connotation here. But it's for example, you know, approximately, you know, let's say once a month, you will buy toilet paper. Once um, uh, three, yeah. once in three months, you will buy jeans. I just shipped to you like four type of new jeans that H and M did. You choose which one. You return the other one. So it's uh, it's actually a, a a very simplistic approach to us as a human and the behavior that we have, right? Yeah, I mean, I see a lot of improvement areas. Like uh, I order lenses every once in a while. Yeah. I need to buy new shoes. I need to buy new stuff. So, so yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, Autumn comes, the snow comes. You basically ship like a, I don't know, new skiing jacket or what's yeah. a, or you have bought something for, I don't know, you're going to a trip, uh, oh. skiing trip. And then you get like, okay, maybe that is a little bit too much. I think, it's the, no. <laughs> I think what we need to improve to make this a good model is the last mile delivery. Yeah. Uh, we've seen an uplift with that, with the new players, at least now I'm talking Sweden primarily. But I don't think this will be a good approach until there actually is good last mile delivery that can ship on demand and can say, hey, do you want jeans? No, okay, then they'll just bring it back as well. 
because otherwise you don't want to get overloaded with uh, home deliveries or you need to go up uh, because PostNo didn't deliver to your doorstep. So you need to go all the way up <laughs> to the, the, the place where you actually get the parcels. Okay, jeans, I didn't order these and then send them back. Mm. So as long as you, you optimize for, for that process, I think it's a good idea. Well, I guess it's some kind of a subscription model, right? Yeah. <clears throat> that we're talking about. I don't know if this is the, the it doesn't say any, anywhere subscription because uh, what the problem that you are uh, indicating on is probably is going to come to these guys because if it's not a subscription model but if it's a subscription model and you know what you have subscribed for yeah it's like uh, i read three books per week or three books per per month then you will not have that uh, last mile delivery problem right because no. you already subscribe for it you know what you're going to get it's like mudhem right they, well they already already sold that on they made it into a digital product now you can yeah. read it on your kindle instead yeah exactly <laughs> cool. Uh, there was a, a short question to break. Oh, are we done with this topic or? No, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I think we're done. Yeah. So um, proceed. a lot of topic, uh, a lot of uh, questions today. I love it. Um, in some industries in automotive manufacturing, for example, data is not accessible. How uh, could uh, work ways around uh, such a restriction? So basically, how can you work in uh, organization to make progress when you don't have the data available because it's quite large. Well, the question, well, I would ask follow-up questions, but what I'm hearing here is you don't have access today. Is it because you can't pull it out? Is the first one, are you not allowed to? Uh, if you're not allowed to even touch it, then that's quite hard, I, I would say. If you don't have the data, you can't do anything. Mm. The way around it is looking more on the security aspect. I was introduced a few weeks back to tokenization of data and anonymization of data sets that you actually pull out to make sure you don't have any identifiable data in that. So you actually look on each individual and you see how ident identifiable is the data in that data set. So you bring it up and they made some benchmarking uh, with just a few low drops in accuracy. You're able to actually build models out of that semi-anonymized type of data sets with non-identifiable data. So if it's PII type of setup, you're not able to pull it out. Well, look into tokenization. There are companies supporting with that today. If you're not able to access the data, I'm, I'm sorry, you, you need data to do AI. I, I don't know what advice to do. Uh, I can, I, I, I would love to come and help you convince people. Yeah. Tiny data. Tiny data. Tiny data. Was it for the automotive industry? Or yes, or? it's for the automotive industry. So also. that's weird. You know, automotive industry is probably the, one of the, in the sectors that produce most data of all. And a single Tesla car is like, yeah. you know, <laughs> insane amount of petabytes of data per day or well, something. Well, maybe so. Devon Shu should tell us which company he's working with so we can make a comparison <laughs> there. But, uh, but I think the short yeah, answer thank is. You for the, uh, thank you for the questions, uh, yeah. Devon Shu. Thank you for following up. Yeah. So I think actually people don't realize it's actually easier to collect data than people think. Yeah. And uh, if you just are a bit innovative there and put a microphone somewhere, do a camera somewhere, have a sensor somewhere, you can actually start collecting data much easier than people think. And if it's sensitive data, there are, you know, techniques to work around that. Like ferritin learning, you can move the model to where the data is and not actually extract yes. the data and have it stored centrally. So then you can still train models and still do things even while keeping the data secure. So, I mean, and this is, I just want to follow up on federated learning because it's, it's so interesting as well, because it's not just maybe automotive where you do processing at the edge. Yeah. I really love edge computing and it's coming yeah. more and more now. 
but it's also around what data can I move from different countries. I think what we'll start seeing is central data models being created and then pushed out to the different edges or, or countries for, for computation or, or inference. Yeah. But end of the day, you still need some type of pattern to be able to run these models. So you need some sort of sense of the data schema mm. and some sort of sense of the, uh, the content to have some sort of standardification around this. Mm. Uh, and I mean, I would love to follow up on this because it's a, an extremely interesting topic and the solutions are, are quite many. Mm. Yeah. Okay, good, there you have it. Yeah. And uh, uh, you have like, uh, Bjorn Henrik Zink, I believe is your colleague, right? Yes, yes. Uh, he's very active. So shout out <laughs> to Bjorn. <laughs> <laughs> good, yeah. Good, yeah. Say hello to Bjorn as well. Yeah. Cool, and uh, the time is flying away and we have like 15 minutes or so, or so left, but we I would like to move into more like uh, general philosophical questions about society, etc. But before we move there, uh, I've been avoiding a topic of fashion, which is, of course, at the heart of H&M a bit. I think your T-shirt is very fashionable, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't make it, but still. Um, so, of course, fashion is very important for H&M, and they want to understand how the trend is moving, and I guess also personalize fashion more and more, right? Or how would you describe in five years what H&M can do to understand fashion better? It's a very good question. I think understanding, I mean, I think what we need to do is, is start seeing the trends and act on them faster. We're already now taking the first step with, of course, fashion forecasts and everything. Mm. It doesn't just become to uh, H&M as a company. I think it, we need to start looking at H&M as an ecosystem as well. Uh, an ecosystem of our entire supply chain. How can you work more with other companies, partnerships? I mean, this is bigger than AI. Mm. How do we enable your taste to be fully individual? Uh, maybe not just with everything that H&M does, but how do we enable the world to be more individualized? Right. And then also then moving that question towards how do we make it personalized? Not just about fashion and where you're going, but how do we make your experience personalized? Uh, the, there was a quote I heard earlier in my career, like everybody wants to feel like a rock star. Mm. Not everybody is a rock star, but a way of feeling like a rock star is that you get that special treatment. Mm. And I think it's not possible to do that today on a one-to-one -one basis, but AI will enable everybody's sense of being unique. Mm. And I think that's where we're moving. So mm. what I talk about when we talk about personalization these days is not just make a good recommendation. It's not just about having the next best offer. It's not just about having different models. It's about how do we have a model of models that make sure that you get the right interaction with the right point at the right contextual state, uh, making sure you're legible and not uh, over uh, exposed to different uh, offerings, etc. Mm -hmm. How do we make this team to an experience that it's tailored for you with the different parts of the narrow AI yeah. that we have today while we're waiting for general AI. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably take some but, time. But <laughs> yeah. would, would, sorry, yeah, but would you say that, uh, I mean, this is not only for fashion and not only for, for, for H&M and et cetera. I think True. for many industries will need to uh, recalibrate and even uh, redefine themselves as what is their core uh, first principle. Uh, mm -hmm. So for example, like Dan Forst from a uh, engineering company becomes a water uh, company because yeah. they, 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 you know, they produce all the, 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 the walls and et cetera. So they're responsible for the water, right? Or you have like a uh, Volvo now creating a, a, um, a car fleet, mm -hmm. right? So it's, uh, would you say that 
companies in the fashion industry will have to redefine themselves what they are? Yeah, I think so. I mean, H&M has in a way done that. Uh, we don't just talk about uh, um, H&M, the brand anymore. We talk about the ecosystem. Mm. So for us, it's becoming more and more apparent that our size in, can enable others as well to, to piggyback on that, making sure that we enable the group, etc. So mm. I think companies will need to redefine themselves over and over again, just as Kodak once failed <laughs> of doing that. Uh, if you want to say- They failed only once. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you only failed once. Uh, but I mean, if you want to stay in business, you need to constantly renew yourself. And I think this is nothing to do with AI. I think AI, however, now is driving of this course. transformation. And a rapid one. In a well. rapid one. So it's an AI transformation. Yes. Uh, and just to close that a bit and, and perhaps try to go a bit more concrete as well. And um, I'm not sure what you're planning and if you can even speak about, you know, the future products that you will have in terms of fashion, etc. in in H&M. So, but thinking about, you know, how will you simply be able to use the camera or perhaps in store if you have some kind of thing you move up to, they, they, they take a picture of you or something, or they try to understand who you are. Or how can you see a future of a personalized, you know, recommendation working? Mm -hmm. Is it something you can talk about or share something about? I can share my own thinking about yeah. it. I think what we'll start seeing more and more, and I think I already mentioned this, is edge. Mm -hmm. What we will probably start seeing more and more for H&M and other companies as well is moving these things closer to the consumers. So, for instance, and this is just me speculating, uh, mirrors in store having yeah. built-in recommendation systems. Mirrors, so uh, you basically move, go up to a mirror, and it actually can, exactly yeah. it, it's it's edge computing, so you can infer intelligent your, mirror, mirrors. intelligent mirror. I yes. think that will be a thing. Yeah. My speculation, so don't bet all your money on it. <laughs> uh, having things in your phone, we're already now having um, uh, an app developed. I think it's just in beta, but it's called Perfect Fit, huh? uh, which we've shown publicly a few times, where you take a picture of yourself and it can actually fit H&M clothes on your body type and see is so it a good augmented fit. Re reality augmented reality. Augmented yeah. reality. That's also an edge type of computing uh, yeah. setup. Uh, contextualizing uh, as well, uh, much more. Mm. Uh, I know Spotify has uh, filed a few patents being able to listen to voice and everything. And of mm. course, there are privacy concerns there. But I think that's where we're moving. Maybe not H&M specifically, but a lot of companies mm. being able to put your recommendations into context. Right. If you can read somebody's voice, for instance, that means you can probably detect their mood. If you can detect their mood, you can provide them with more relevant recommendations. Mm. Uh, am I sad? Maybe you should have something to feel yeah. a little bit more happy. Am I angry? Maybe something to calm you down. Mm. So I think edge is the key for a lot of these things because that data will be collected on the edge. And for order, and in order for it to be previously secure and everything, it also needs to be computed and handled on the edge. Mm. I don't think any company should have that centrally because that's extremely dangerous. Yeah, sure. uh, and that's where I see we're going. So more contextualized type of recommendations. Cool. I remember a full, uh, fun little side part we did at Spotify once and that was Bartendro. Um, it basically said, you know, give me your playlist that you like and I will serve you a drink that <laughs> match this uh, music taste. Perhaps you will have something similar in, in H&M. So give me your <laughs> music recommendations and I will recommend some clothes. Why not? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> this is an interesting one. How do you measure social media fashion influencers on total revenue using AI or analytics? That's a very good question. <laughs> I don't have a good answer, unfortunately. 
Uh, we will have to come back to that one, I think. But we, it was we'll take that in, in the after, after work, <laughs> <Yes>. perhaps. <laughs> okay, so a last question before we move to more philosophical one. But uh, I know you also are very interested in you know leadership and how to yeah. build great teams, etc. And and if we try to keep the answer kind of short now, what would be your best advice to build teams that can be innovative and happy and productive? Get out of their way. Ah. I think that one of the key good things or bad things uh, is that I try to build autonomous teams as much as possible. Mm -hmm. My work today is mainly about empowering them, making sure that they have the right prerequisite Mm -hmm. uh, and that they don't have to come to me for everything. Every question they have for me is a failure in a sense. Mm -hmm. What I want to talk to them about is the output, the effect, uh, rather than the actual technical details which is too bad for me because I love the technical details yeah. coming from an, being an expert and I'm moving into leadership is very hard. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I just want to get out of their way, make sure they build great uh, teams, um, <laughs> great products mm. uh, and that H&M can benefit from it. Awesome. That's a really good ending. And I think you said something about once and, and sorry for paraphrasing you potentially, but I think you said something about, you know, it's 10, 10% about the algorithm, it's 20% about the tech and 70% about the people. Yes. What do you mean with that? Uh, well, when I say people, it's about the, the business transformation. So uh, an algorithm uh, and technology, of course, are the key components. But if we all remember the uh, Google NIPS paper about technical depth, mm-hmm. <laughs> developing ML systems, it's just a small part about that. Mm. And that's uh, a hidden, hidden technical depth of machine learning or something. Yes, NIPS yeah. 2016. 15. 15. 15. Yeah, I'm probably. Okay. I, I'm all wrong with dates. Never no, quote me a date. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Uh, but the, the large part is the, the people. So mm. how are you going to get people to trust the output? How are you going to get people to use the results? How are you going to change the business process? Mm. I usually say the easiest thing is just augment or jack into an existing process. Mm. It's much harder if you actually start changing the process. Right. People are creatures of habits. Yeah. Um, what we're doing now is uh, we are uh, we are just treating, treating the symptoms, I would say. We're yeah. giving them aspirin. Because the things that are painful today, mm. we can use AI to make it less painful. Right. What we need to do, and this is the AI-driven transformation, is to do business process re-engineering right. with AI and data. We need to change the processes so we cure the disease, mm. which is not being data-driven. Well said, I think. Um, and let's see what we have time to move into. So I'm thinking potentially to, I think we covered the AI device, so let's not go there. Um, we have, okay, I, I simply let you choose some topics now. I'm going to present like three different topics and Ooh. you can choose one. And one could be um, about the singularity. And, you know, you spoke about a, a bit about the general intelligence. And there will be a, probably a time in the future when it will happen. So the question then would be a bit, you know, are you concerned? Um, what do you think we should do to try to maximize the positive you know, benefits that we can have of data? I, for and, once, uh, welcome our new overlords. Thank you. Actually, <laughs> I'm here. No, no, I'm sorry, but uh, I think that's a very good way to phrase it. I, I do as well, actually. Uh, the other topic could be the pandemic. You know, it has had a huge impact on H&M, of course, and the whole society. And then the question is more about, you know, what can we do to just potentially take advantage of the the drastic transformation that we have had to do in this year to 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 basically adapt to that and how can we 
make use of AI and data to, to help out with that. So that could be another question. And a third, and I have so many to choose from here, um, could potentially be, there is this quote from Jeremy Howard, and he is, uh, yeah, he was previously the president of Kaggle and now the founder of Fast AI, trying to teach, you know, how people should use AI. And he said something like, most research in deep learning is a total waste of time. And um, I, I think, you know, he's right in, in some aspects. And uh, it's, it's interesting, you know, how we can try to make the research be more useful in some sense for industry, like H&M. Okay, so these are three topics, singularity, pandemic, or the, you know, research usefulness. Who do you choose to speak well, Super interesting. Let's go with the pandemic because it's, mm-hmm. it's relatively wide. So, mm-hmm. And I think this is, let's see if we can bridge them a little bit, but let's okay. start with the pandemic. Yeah. Awesome. So, so where do you want to start then? Okay, so, so pandemic. I, of course, you know, it's been a, one of the biggest transformations that we've seen in the society in, in you know, for a very long time. And I think also we can see that if pushed to the wall, companies can actually transform much quicker than people imagine. Just take the educational systems or universities and they had to move everything online when it comes to courses. And uh, I think it was the, the Minister of Education in Sweden that said, you know, in the last three months, we have been forced to digitalize more than we have done in the last five years or something uh, after the pandemic started happening. Um, so for one, it can be a positive aspect in that it forces us to transform and show what, what we can do if we are sufficiently pushed to the wall. Um, so that could be one aspect of it. The other aspect could be, okay, it has happened. It hopefully will start to, uh, to uh, have some end. There will be a post-corona time soon. But what will that really mean? What will that mean for H&M, for example, in the post-corona time? So... Uh, any, any choice of those two? Uh, speaking about, you know, do you think we have any learnings to do from the big impact that Corona have had? Or do you, do you have any thoughts about, you know, what will happen with H&M post-Corona? I think let, let's start maybe the, the learnings. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I want to start, I mean, the, the pandemic is a huge tragedy, especially for, for any of those that have lost a, a loved one. Yeah. Uh, and if I could choose, I would say let's never have a pandemic. <laughs> but now it's here, and, and let's let's learn from it. Yeah. I think change can large scale change can come from people either being extremely pressed, like during the, the Corona times, or people gathering around a great vision, like a, a man in a man on the mood in this decade. Mm. That that was a great vision, and it enabled the the, the, the space flight to Apollo to to the moon, and. What we here can take as learnings is that we are capable of pretty much anything mm. as long as we're not in our comfort zone. I think comfort zone is where change and great ideas go to die. And I think the pandemic pushed us into driving transformation. Right. And now that we're coming out of it, we need to ask ourselves, what, what are we going to do now? Are we going to embrace this change? Are we going to continue moving towards a better society? Because that's where I think we're going. Uh, we can pull together and do great things and we can save a lot of life and we can create uh, a better world for everyone. Mm. Uh, these are the, the things I see on the agenda uh, that we can <laughs> take as learning. Or are we going to continue traveling? Uh, are we going to continue destroying our planet? 
uh, or are we going to, to take this opportunity uh, and just make sure we leave the, the earth behind to be uh, inhabited by our kids? We don't have a planet B, as Elon Musk said, and we're not on Mars yet. Mm. Uh, and things are, are happening to our world. Yeah. There were a hundred thousand less flights in, in Sweden or above Stockholm last year, I read uh, yeah. this morning. Uh, and if we can continue having this great impact on the world, I would say let, let's continue. Let's, let's learn from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there are so many learnings and I think we will continue to an- analyze that. We're currently in very much a panic state and you know, just, just trying to cope day, day by day. But th- there will be a point where we will see this is amazing what we were able to do during this year, uh, both when it comes to using data and AI to help from a medical point of view, but I think also from an economical point of view, um, which yeah. of course uh, H&M, I think, you know, adapted surprisingly quickly to do that and uh, hopefully that there will be so many learnings from this um, in, in being able to to not have as severe impact in the future. Would you agree? I, I fully agree. I think what we learn as companies as well, and this goes back to AI and how we implement change and all the topics here is how do we respond to changes yeah. and how quickly do we respond to changes? Yeah. Uh, the, the measurement and how do we how do we look on research as well? It's a very good topic here right. because a lot of com- a lot of companies, a lot of countries reacted overly too much mm. and some overly too little. Uh, but no, there were very few countries that looked at the research and said, let's have a scientific approach to this as well. I think it's never been as many professors on morning TV yeah. shows as it's been in the last year. Yeah. So in some way it's, uh, yeah. It's a good way of, of lifting up research, but you have to do it in the right way as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, it, it's good to listen to say that there are no certainties in this world. Yeah. It comes to AI and data as well. Yeah. We need to learn that there are no, well, everything, even a fact can be questioned sometimes, mm. but we need to look on the data and we need to ask the question, what data point are you using to prove that? Because if all we have are opinions, let's go with mine. <laughs> exactly. I think that's an awesome ending point. You know, it's really demonstrated that we we need to rely on data to see what really does work or does not. If we don't do that, it will not go as well as as it otherwise could have. Arul, awesome. Um, What's next in your life? Privately? Professionally, well, I, I I have to build a few things in the house, which is on the <laughs> private side, which I love. Yeah. This is why I've been off this entire Easter. If I succeed, let, let's see. Uh, next in my life, uh, summer is going to be about the things that we, we talked about. I don't know. I mean, what I'm good at, or starting to realize I'm good at, is building up and implementing AI and data-driven change. Mm-hmm. Um, I see myself in the future building these type of capabilities. It goes back to my own personal why. I want to change the world to become more data and AI driven because I, I truly believe that will generate positive impact. Yeah. Uh, where, what, and when, I don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I usually say, I'm really bad on predicting the future. <laughs> Predictions is hard, especially if it's about the future, right? Yes. <laughs> what are you going to do with the house, by the way? Are you going to? Uh, well, I'm going to uh, build a small fence uh, mm-hmm. and then uh, improve the garden a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, starting to shape up now, so it's really nice to see. And of course, then prepare it for for spring. Right. You think we'll have a more or less normal summer, or what's your prediction there? Well, just looking on the data, it's very uncertain. Yeah. True. Um, anyone that you would recommend to have on this podcast that you would uh, like to, to listen to yourself? 
Well, I, I would recommend uh, Johan Wallin from, from Electrolux. Yes. Um, he is a good friend of mine. I've heard him speak many times, but yeah. I, I he's can on the list. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, uh, he, he's a good one. Anyone else? Or? Uh, what I'm missing a little bit uh, from the past, maybe some, some more international guests as well. Mm-hmm. Of course, I know it's hard with traveling these days. Yeah. Uh, but, but I'm looking forward uh, to, to actually seeing maybe somebody from the US or other parts of, of Europe. Uh, but I, I can promise to get back to you with some of my friends. Yeah, as soon as as soon as uh, the you know the flights are so open, that is the plan actually. So we right now, uh, so the concept is that we have the people in house, and we have said uh, no to many people actually mm-hmm. that wanted to do it distant, unfortunately. But the concept is this, uh, and yeah, uh, I love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Aron, it's been a true pleasure to, to have you on this podcast. Uh, we've spoken many times, but I don't think we have spoken in this depth at no. any point before. And uh, you have, all, as always, so many insightful comments, I think. Thank you, Anders. So thank you very much and um, have an awesome continued uh, time and uh, good luck with the house as well. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.